Welcome to the official podcast of Fourternia.com. We have the power. I'm your host, AJ, aka Voodoo Magic, aka Zor. And today's episode is titled Reborn, a title inspired by the 2021 animated series Masters of the Universe Revelation Powerhouse Animation Model Sheet, Orco Reborn, that represents the show's metamorphosis of Orco. But also, it is a title that perfectly encapsulates this new age of Motu, where today, January 25th, the next chapter, the next animated series installment of titled Masters of the Universe Revolution has dropped on Netflix. And who better to discuss all of this, the metamorphosis of Orko and the brand, followed by a juicy, you know, spoiler discussion of uh, Masters of the Universe Revolution. And don't worry, we will warn you when we get there. Then with the talented star of both stage and screen, fantastic podcast host, and the man who plays the Trollin Wizard himself, Griffin Newman. Griffin, it's such, a, it's such an honor. Thank you so much for coming on. No, I'm so glad we can make this uh, happen. You, you messaged me many, many months ago, and I'm very bad at checking messages. But what I thought I had responded at the time was, uh, let's put a pin in it, talk when the new seasons come out, so there's something juicy to talk about. And then I went to message you when my mind, I thought, was following up and realized, no, this is my first response. <laughs> um, but I'm glad we made it happen. Yeah, me too. Me too. And um, so... Before we started recording, I was uh, telling Griffin that, um, you know, I had this splitting sinus headache, uh, which I'll apologize in advance if I sound more incoherent uh, than usual. But uh, I said I was going to lean on him and I'm not worried because um, this gentleman is a pro and uh, he has a long running podcast called Blank Check. How long has that been running, Griffin? Uh, in March, it will be nine years. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this what, guy is an expert and I'm going to lean on him. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone's an expert in podcasting. It's weird when there's a medium that's so young still relatively that like, uh, you know, I the people I think of as experts are the people who've been doing it for 15 years, hmm. which is basically as long as anyone's been doing it. And even those people will tell you to some degree, we're all uh, scrambling in the dark. Do you know who the pioneer was? I would love to know that. Like the who the first, first, first? That's a good question. Um, there's definitely there's the wave of people I look to who I'm like they were in in sort of 2005 2006, which is when it was really starting to kick off. But I don't know who like the first first was. Hmm. When when my co-host David Sims and I got into doing our show, we thought fully that we were too late. We were like 2015. The, the trend has peaked. Yeah. We're getting in too late. We might be able to grab some table scraps, but this whole thing is probably on its way out. We were we were very wrong. You know what? Yeah, I still think it is a growing medium. It's definitely it a lot, yeah, yeah. lot crowded now, and I'm sure like yeah. every week there's just new and new podcasts popping up. But it um, seems like uh, a large percentage of them don't stick with it, you know, and... I think that's the big thing. I mean, the, the thing that I love about podcasting as a medium is that it is, um, I feel like it's much more democratic 
than any other art form we've had um, because uh, its creation was tied to basically everyone having access to the exact same tools to make stuff. You know, you can have a nicer microphone or you can have a, a sound studio with insulation or whatever, but basically anyone with any device could make some version of a podcast and for $100 a year, upload it somewhere, you know, have it live at the absolute least. Um, so what's nice about that is there is no bar for entry. You're not begging old companies to give you money and access and permission to do something. And what's tough about it is that uh, anyone can do it, which means it's that much harder to get anyone to pay attention to the thing that you're doing. Yeah. But yeah, we, we for a long, I mean, for several years, there was a very small number of people who were listening to us and we just kind of stuck with it because we like doing it and the fact that it's uh we're still doing it almost a decade later is very surprising that's great yeah i was actually listening the other day and um i believe you guys were talking uh director david fincher um, mm -hmm. and the movie the social network and i was so impressed you know my my brain isn't like wired as sharp and snappy as you guys. And uh, you guys were just like rapid fire with the movie references and the trivia. And you guys must be awesome at that game. Um, Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Pretty good at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I bet. But, I'll, but I'll say, I mean, it, it is truly, this is the only area in which my uh, brain is wired that sharply. You, you <laughs> color outside almost any other subject and I know nothing. And my recall is really slow. This is just kind of all the stuff that's on the surface. Movies and Motu and action figures. And like, there's my series of interests, which I, I go very deep on and have quick recall on. And then uh, if you showed me a map of the United States, I would really embarrass myself on a quick loop. <laughs> well, yeah, you were, um, I think you said, you said somewhere you were like really good at, um, trivia right or you would like that's that our podcast came out of uh, uh oh. david and i went to a movie trivia night a bar night at a bar that sadly is shut down since in uh in williamsburg brooklyn and um we sort of became friends through going to that and getting very very competitive about it and we sort of we very quickly went from being um kind of the underdogs who people were rooting for that's sweet that they show up and they try their hardest to win to uh being like the the bullies like the camp mohawk that everyone hated um so we stopped going and it was i mean it was a really high level trivia night that was mostly film critics and uh, people who worked on film crews and film students um and a lot of the people who are guests on our podcast now are people we first met from that trivia night um but when we stopped going, we realized that we had stopped hanging out, that that was our structure, was every Tuesday we would hang out with each other, and we kind of missed each other as friends. So we said, like, what's a new way? We need some activity to form our friendship around. So the podcasting really started as an excuse for us to get together and just talk and have a set plan to do that once a week. Um, and then over time, it turned into uh, uh, more of a job. <laughs> well... Yeah. I imagine um, your audience has grown tremendously. So, and um, I don't know. I've, for me, uh, you don't want me on movie trivia night. You know, I think I forget more than I remember generally in life. You know, do you feel like you could do like a Motu specific trivia though? Because I, I feel like there are people who, even if they have the knowledge, the structure of trivia as a game, the pressure of it, their brain doesn't operate well in that situation. 
Yeah, I think I have trouble with names. You know, okay. like if I start calling you Kevin Smith today, you can do that. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I that. left my I left my jersey at home, but you can do that. But like, do you think? I mean, if I were to start pointing at the figures behind you on the shelf, do you feel like it would take a moment to recall one? Uh probably not. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. This not. is my question. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So maybe if it was in this little fixed little niche, but uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to give it a try one time, but you're, you're definitely not going to want to um, pick me last. <laughs> sure. I'm So I'm trying to, because, uh, you know, StreamYard, it's a smaller box. Yeah. But is everything behind you, this is classics and Masterverse, right? Yeah. And you Classic. have Origins there as well? Uh, or is that I, a separate? I don't think in that view you can yeah. see origins but there is some classics you know the filmation classics figures i love the club gray skull figures yes yeah and um so if you're looking in that center row i guess right here right those are like the filmation ones and then yeah there's a yeah. classics granamir but then some masterverse like he-man and tila and prince adam and i then... just feel like it is an interesting thing and i'm always curious to see you know i've watched your channel for a while and i watched so many other uh uh motu youtubers uh, and when I'm scanning people's collections, it's interesting to see who mixes classics and Masterverse because mm. they are pretty, you know. Yeah, they're pretty interchangeable. They yeah. pose pretty well together. Yeah. And, you know, the articulation structure is a little bit different. But yeah. by and large, it's like the size is just about the same. And it's it feels like you have them separated by shelves, but the shelves are so close to each other that it does feel like they're all unified. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, have you picked up your? Come on, have you picked up your Masterverse Orco figures? Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there he is. Yeah, I got that one too. I actually did an unboxing and review. Um, for anyone who's listening, that's Orco. Yes, I guess it's just called Orco, but it's really Orco. Reborn. Well, I this is. I mean, you were saying this in the introduction, and it's yeah. it's fascinating to me because, as you said, Orco Reborn was the title the powerhouse put it on it for like the character design turnaround, mm -hmm. and I feel like on working on the show. We always kind of informally called him Orko the White, but that's sort of just a a, a Gandalf yeah. joke. Yeah. And then what, what's the other one? There's another term that we use sometimes when we refer to him. But I feel like, and I imagine you're maybe the same way, you know, all these names are sort of casual and colloquial until it's put onto action figure packaging. And then you're like, well, now that's solidified as that's the official term. And in this, the new Masterverse set with Wilder, I think he's just listed as Orko. They don't give him a subtitle. So I think it's still up for debate what the official name is for the, for the new yeah. post-death Orko. You know, Masterverse has this issue, and I've raised it before, where um, they have like eight or nine Skeletors. And, yes. and even though it's like different type of version, like a Horde Skeletor right. um, from Masters of the Universe Revelation, they the nickname is Horde Skeletor, but on the box it just says Skeletor, right? On okay. the box yeah. it just says Skeletor. And right. The like, only sort of titling I feel like they do otherwise is whatever the general branding is of is it New Eternia, is it Revelation? But I I I don't know. I like classics would do that where it's like the variation was part of the proper name of the figure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I wanted Skeletech to be Skeletech, and that just right. That just... one's too wow. Yeah. And I never understood it. Maybe, you know, I actually, like a big geek, I yeah. messaged uh, the product manager, uh, yeah. Roy, and asked him, uh, but I didn't get an answer. 
And um, maybe he didn't have an official answer to provide me, but uh, you know, I thought maybe it was a marketing thing. Like Skeletor is that name. And if yeah. they named it like Skeletech, people wouldn't understand it if they're doing their orders, you know, retailers and stuff like Possibly. that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, but you know, it's like, this is the ninth Skeletor. Yeah. <laughs> Which Skeletor are you referring to? You right, know? Right. Hey, but um, you know what? Let's, let's get into that. Yeah. Uh, little lovable trolling yeah. wizard. So um, before we get into your contribution of the role, um, so what was your exposure, Griffin, to uh, Masters of the Universe when you're younger? You you know, I, I understand you did have some exposure. You were a fan. But oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah was it the time. brand's uh, toys, the cartoon? Um, I got in through. So I'm I'm like a, a late 90s, uh, late 80s baby, rather not late 90s. Uh, I'm young, but I'm not that young. Um, so I was a little too young to miss the original. I, I was a little too young to, to experience the original wave of Motu at its peak. Um, I was sort of growing up as it was uh, winding down. And then I was a big um, like comic book store kid and a really big action figure collector. And I obsessively read Toy Fair magazine. And Toy Fair would always talk about Motu. And this is sort of late 90s at this point early 2000s, um, the other brands that they would talk about were all still kind of on shelves, hmm. you know, even though there had been new iterations. It's like, well, they're talking about G1 Transformers, but Transformers is still around. They're talking about, you know, Valor versus Venom G.I. Joe, or, or real American hero G.I. Joe, but Valor versus Venom is still on shelves, you know? Right. All the other brands had sort of continued iterating Ninja Turtles, obviously like Marvel and DC and Motu had just kind of disappeared in that period. Um, so I was really fascinated by like, what is this thing that is talked about in Toy Fair with so much reverence that was clearly so big generationally that I missed by like a couple years that now seems to just be gone. Um, and right around that time I was at summer camp and I met a guy, uh, an older kid named Grunge uh who was like my idol and he i swear to god his two biggest obsessions were motu and kevin smith he was obsessed with those two things i think it probably was that his birth name grunge no but his oh, okay. his birth right. name was a, a closely uh, guarded government secret <laughs> um, but he uh he would, he would dress like Silent Bob in the middle of the summer. I mean, he wore the big trench coat and the backwards hat and everything. Oh, and great. was obsessed with Motu and made some reference to Prince Adam at some point. And I went, do you know about this? What is this thing? And he started explaining it to me as a kid who was like five years older than me and had been able to live through the, the height of it. And right around that time, they started doing the, I guess it would have been, was it for the... 15th anniversary or the 20th anniversary do you remember when mattel did like 2001 they did a series of reissues of the original figures yeah they put them back in stores and like super commemorative fancy packaging right before the classics yeah well it was right before the the 2000x series that too yep it was it was right before they announced that so that's when i got in it was like suddenly the old figures are back on shelves then the 2000X series starts with the four horsemen figures, the, that line. And when that line hit, 
the uh, it, they had both the deluxe figures and then certain retailer exclusives. It would come with a VHS of the Filmation series. Mm. There were like ten volumes of the Filmation series, like one episode per VHS as a bonus with figure. So I was almost a completist on that the the Four Horsemen two thousand X line, and then was collecting these VHSs in the time before the the DVD sets actually came out. So that's really like um, when I got hardcore into it. I have remained a fan since then through classics and everything. You know, <laughs> this guy grunge. I mean, in a way, yeah. prolific. Kevin yeah. Smith, <laughs> Masters of the Universe. It's insane. It's you insane. Still, do you still talk to him? I haven't talked to him in a bit. I, I did keep in touch with him for a while. I would run into him at like Comic Cons and stuff. I mean, he lives in Canada. Um, but I do think about how bizarre that is that when, when I heard, Hey, they're doing a new Motu series and Kevin Smith is the showrunner. I did think like, did grunge will this into existence? Was this like a, a Zoltar machine wish that he made come true? I was not expecting those two names to ever come together outside of a grunge sentence. Yeah. They really didn't feel like they would ever mesh in my no 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 yeah. yeah you know um so you got those filmation episodes so yeah you became the filmation series after you started watching those episodes yeah okay yeah 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 no i i i watched those a lot and then the 2000x the mike young production show started right after that i watched mm -hmm. that obsessively and then mm -hmm. maybe a year or two after that i think those season dvd sets came out so i was sort of I was getting into the the 2000X stuff at the same time as I was going back into the classic filmation and the vintage figures and everything. But I was just uh, uh, in in high school, the wrong age to be <laughs> incredibly into both 80s and 2000s Motu. You know, yeah. I was sort of like stuck between a couple spots, um, but but really, really deeply into it. You know, I had a friend um, who was really into it as well, but he was like ahead of his time. He was like in his, um, you know, age 12, age 13, he would keep it pristine. Like smart. The yeah. Friends would come over and be like, um, you know, to grab the play with it. He'd be like, don't yeah. touch it. Don't yeah. touch it. <laughs> and he was ahead of his time. You know, he everyone thought he was like wacko, you know, like what's with him and he won't share his toys. But uh, it was all about, you know, keeping them perfect. And who knew that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was so smart. I know. It's it's uh I mean you were asking if I if I have my own Masterverse figures. I have too many Masterverse figures in general, but certainly I I have multiples of the first Orco figure. This one, the Orco Reborn, I finally just got my hands on one, but I'm I'm looking to get more soon. But I've um already had a big Motu collection and it's certainly gotten bigger over the last couple of years. That's but great. I got the part a couple months before the pandemic started. So I think like a lot of people whose collections got out of control during the pandemic where you're suddenly stuck at home uh, with more time to browse eBay. Yeah. Uh, less less activities uh, to take your attention away. Um, I, I got, you know, obsessive about I want to have everything Orco, right? Because at this point, it's like now it's a it's a business expense. It's a serious <laughs> business expense for character research well i imagine in animation sales too right you know yeah well that's a slippery slope because there's so yeah. many of them out there that i i do have quite a few but it's like you can't 
try to pick up every single one that circulates. But, but that's um, what makes them so affordable is there were so yeah. many episodes, um, yes. you know, 130 episodes that um, you, you go for like a Bugs Bunny animation cell or, yeah. um, you know, something else that was just a Saturday cartoon with like a limited amount of episodes and the price is so expensive. But yes. uh, the most ones, they're they're plentiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, no, I, I, up I there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously there's so much Motu merch that has Orko on it, like group shot things, you know, uh, things that have multiple characters on the side of a backpack or whatever. And I try to limit myself to like, what are the Orko specific items? Mm-hmm. And part of the game there is figuring out, oh, in Brazil, they made chapstick of the different characters. Was there an Orko version or did they stop at Man at Arms? All those sorts of things. But when I track down some of these items, it's like astonishing when you can find them mint and package. And, you know, even like you talking about your friend growing up who had the foresight to try to keep things pristine, right? And in good condition. Some of these things you're like, how did this survive for 40 years? Not even like unopened, but even if this was just unsold stock in the back room of a store, you know, Mm. I don't care that much about having pristine packaging. I, I prefer to just have the thing. But sometimes you find something and you go like, it's just wild that this actually survived in this condition for this long, untouched. Yeah, and I wonder if that's all foresight or some of that is like it went into a box. It's supposed to be yeah. a birthday I present. Think, and... I, I think a lot of it is like, I think a lot of the stuff that exists in the best condition is stuff that was truly neglected, hmm. you know, that was unsold, that was like lost, you know, packed away somewhere. Because especially back then, back then there wasn't yeah. that collector mindset. Yes, no. I had a friend with the foresight, but most people right. didn't treat collectibles that way. Like I have, um, <laughs> this is going to show how a geek I am. Uh, somewhere down here, I have, um, you remember Masters of the Universe Revelation, uh, the cereal boxes, Eternia Crunch. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I think FYE. Yes. So, I, yeah. so I have two boxes with the yeah, cereal same. still inside. Same wrapped yeah. in plastic yes. you know and um but to find something back from the 80s like yeah. that is just unheard of well that's the stuff right like the food items i mean i i understand there was a small percentage of people who had the foresight of like maybe action figures will go up in value mm-hmm. you know a couple decades time but when you see like a nightlight that is still like mint on card you're like i don't think anyone could have anticipated the nightlight market <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. And like the nightlight seems to be the rarest Orco thing out there. It is like never up for sale. I forget which country it's from, but there's like an Orco nightlife that I, uh, nightlight, uh, Orco nightlife is a spinoff show. There's an Orco nightlight that I cannot find for the life of me. Um, and occasionally I'll see an image up there of like, oh, one sold on eBay 10 years ago. And there's still somewhere like the remnant of the listing mint on card. And it's fascinating to think, like, was that just some old drugstore that, like, it fell behind the rack and just stayed there, you know, preserved, like, mummified? It might have. I've heard stories yeah. of that. People in warehouses open a box and it's, like, mint yeah. and card, like, Kenner Star Wars figures from 19, you know, 80 or 79 or whatever that was. Yeah. But, um, well, 77, right? But the figures came out. Wouldn't 78. come out until 78. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
All right, so so let's rewind then yes, and talk please. about you getting yeah. that role of Orko in the Masters of the Universe Revelation uh, series because you know I heard bits and pieces mm-hmm. of this and it's pretty wild, especially with you being a fan. Um, meaning there's not many stories out there where someone is wanting a role, chasing a role, six, lobbying for the role. And actually successfully gets it. You know, it always seems like the opposite happens, especially when you're a fan. So it's like you really defied gravity here. A little bit. Yeah. I do think sometimes, I mean, it's funny. I I was um, on a TV show called The Tick for Amazon that was an adaptation of the comic book and then the Fox cartoon show and then the Patrick Warburton Fox show. Um, you were Arthur. I was Arthur, which was insane. It was similarly a character I've loved for a long time and a property I've loved for a long time that I really wanted to play. But that was, you know, kind of an entirely traditional thing where my agent sent me an email and say, hey, there's an opportunity to audition for the role of Arthur. Do you want to make a tape and send it in to them? Um, and I the whole time thought it was very unlikely that I was going to get that part as badly as I wanted it. And I worked very hard to try to convince them to hire me, which did somehow ultimately work, but I was not campaigning for that publicly. I did not know that the show was coming back until I got that audition, at which point there was a sort of official channel. This is the proper way for me to make my case for playing this part, you know, go through these auditions and these meetings and these tapes and, and all of that. And I just did not let most people in my life even know that I was in contention for it until it got announced because I didn't want to jinx it. The Orco thing was, as you're sort of saying, the opposite, where I was very vocal out loud very early on that I wanted to do this long before there was any official pipeline to even sort of make my my stand, do my proper audition for it. Um, there's a writer on the show, I believe he also wrote on season two, uh, named Eric Carrasco, who is a good friend of uh, my oldest friend. My oldest friend's a guy named Derek Simon, who wrote for uh, Supergirl and has written for a bunch of other things, but wrote on the entirety of the CW Supergirl And we were summer camp buddies. He was the only other guy I knew who was still collecting action figures as we were both in those transitional ages where you're starting to see everyone else fall out of it. And it's like, oh, you also have a Toy Fair subscription? You're also like pot committed to this for the rest of your life? Um, So we were two nerds who would run, I would say, almost this minor con of uh, forgetting to pack our bathing suit every day so they couldn't make us go in the swimming pool. So then we would sit on the side in the dirt next to the swimming pool and trade X-Men cards. And we would like doodle our dream action figure lines. We were both obsessed with like, okay, what would be in series one and what would be in series two and what are the variants and how would you draw it? Where would the articulation cuts be? I mean, just like deep, deep dorks. And um, so like 10, 20 years later, we find ourselves, he's writing for Supergirl and I'm on the tick and we're both sort of, doing the real version of what we used to fantasize about as uh, as kids. Um, Eric Carrasco works on Supergirl with him. And I'm catching up with Derek, and he says, by the way, you want to hear something crazy? Do you know what Eric just got hired to write on? The new 
Masters of the Universe show. And I went, there's a new Motu show? And he went, yeah, Kevin Smith's the showrunner. And that's when I go, like, this is some sort of weird psyop to blow Grunge's mind. Um, but I went, oh, that's, that's like, that's insane. Um, I want to play Orko so badly. I immediately said, I want to play Orko so badly. And he went, well, you know what? I should tell Eric to, like, call you. Because I know he's nervous about, you know, trying to understand. Eric's, like, first and foremost, I think, a really big DC Comics guy. Okay. And he's written a couple of the DC animated movies. He wrote for Justice League Action. He wrote on Supergirl. Um, and Motu, he's, he's a, a fan. Big, he's a big Lord of the Rings guy, too, I think. Big Lord of the Rings guy. Uh, has been working on a show with Zack Snyder. Has an incredible resume. Yeah. Um, but I think because he is uh, such a big fan uh, of so many things, he knew Motu is not my number one thing. I like this but I kind of want to understand before I start writing for it, what are like the most extreme opinions in this sphere, which you can never fully prepare yourself for. But Derek <laughs> gives him the heads up and goes, you know, Griffin's actually really into Motu. If you're looking to talk to somebody before you start writing the show. So he calls me and we just have a conversation where I just tell him what I like about it, you know, mm -hmm. um, and sort of as someone who was on the heman.org message boards, RIP, back in the day for a very long time and all these sorts of things. It was just sort of like, you know, where, where does the fandom stand on the live action movie? Is that something that they ignore? Is that something that they like? Is that something people would want to see worked into the canon? He's just a writer on the show, but he's kind of trying to do his homework on understanding the way um, the fandom operates. And so we just have this conversation that's me just sort of giving him my, uh, you know, it's, it's not like I'm pitching him things for the show. Uh, but it's just sort of me telling him my perspective on things. And then he goes, and what's your opinion on Orko? And I go, look, I love Orko. Orko's like a little divisive because I think depending on what age you were when you got into it, you know, Orko's the character that children largely see the show through if you're watching it at the right age because he's the little guy who's joining the adventures, but he's kind of the little brother to everyone. He's trying his hardest, but he's messing up, you know? Um, and then I think, you know, if you were a little bit older when you got into Motu, some people have the relationship of, he's the annoying one, he's getting in the way of all the serious action, it's all this comic hijinks and whatever. And he's just the type of character I've always loved, and the type of comic relief I've always loved, even though I was getting into the shows when I'm like 12 or 13. So I was just making my case for why I love Orko so much. And he went like, is Orko something you'd want to play? And I was like, yes, obviously. I didn't have the courage to say this to you. And he was like, well, look, we haven't started the writer's room, but I was just like, I've been watching the show, prepping for everything. And I just kept thinking like, you could probably do this. And I was like, well, yes, obviously, obviously <laughs> this is my dream role. I would like to do this. Um, so there was that sort of heads up I had of knowing the show was happening, knowing I had at least one other person working on the show who was uh, aligned with me. Um, and I just kind of like stayed on the thing like a hawk. You know, I messaged my, my manager, my agents, and I just said like, look, they're not casting yet. This thing hasn't even formally been announced yet. I really want to play this part. This is the part I want to play. I feel really strongly about this. And then I just kind of stayed in communication. I found out another friend I had, uh, uh, Dimitra, who worked on The Tick, 
also end up getting hired as a writer on the show. Yeah. Um, and so I just kind of stayed abreast of it, but I also became very aware that they were really looking to build this all-star cast that they ended up getting for the show. And I think when the cast was first announced, um, Netflix put out an image of the full cast list of characters. It was and, calligraphy and yeah, yeah, like it was a cracked open book. And a lot of people went like, oh, they're going to spend so much money on this cast. Why aren't they saving the money to put it up on screen? Why wouldn't they spend this money on the animation? We don't care who the famous people are. And what I think people need to understand is uh, every single cast member of this show uh, was paid scale, which is the union minimum you can be paid for any project, right? And scale works relative to scale for a big budget movie or scale for an animated series or whatever it is. But um, it was more that there was a, an overabundance of people who wanted to be part of this project that led to them getting their real pick of the litter for every role and a lot of big names. But um, it certainly wasn't a case of Netflix, I think, aggressively seeking out or overspending to try to get flashy names for the show. I knew a I lot was, of them were fans. You that's know? the like, thing. People like wanted to do it. Yes. Yeah. So I was aware that um, I, I was, I was going to be facing stiff competition no matter what for the role. Uh, I had one good friend who got an, an email for the audition and said to me, I'm, I'm not going in for it because I know this is the part you want. Um, like I, I just... I got so hyper fixated on, I think a lot of it was for me that I always loved Orko so much and I loved kind of the, the spirit of him. I think if Orko were someone who was confidently going into battle and then messing up spells, I would find him annoying in the way that some people do. But the core of Orko that I always loved was that he was operating from such a good place he always so badly wanted to help and help his friends who he cared about so deeply. And every single time he would fail, basically. But he was undeterred, you know? He never stopped trying. And I love characters like that that continue to sort of like push uphill in the face of overwhelming odds. It's a thing I really loved about Arthur on the Tick is that character is so terrified so anxious so in over his head in every battle but yet he shows up and he does it you know he's not strong he's not super powered he's not confident but he like does it and i just felt having done the tick already i think i have a take on how i could do orko that really brings that to the forefront and would love to try to make an orko who's a little bit more um I don't, I, not emotional as in sad, but like emotionally rounded where some of the subtext becomes text. Um, and I'd love that challenge to try to make an Oracle that could win people over. And so, yeah, I just like tweeted about it a lot. Whenever I was doing interviews for The Tick, I would talk about how badly I want to play this character. I just kept on trying to sort of like seed it out there in the world until I finally got the email audition. And I did a tape that was. Uh, me playing every character. There's a recording I have that's still me doing Evil Lynn and He-Man and Orko. Not because I was auditioning for those other parts, but because I, I went, what's well, easier if I'm playing off the other dialogue, even though my Evil Lynn impression was terrible and my He-Man impression was terrible. That doesn't throw you off. 
though, if you're well, both I, sides? It did. It did a little bit. But then I found it's weird. I mean, with voiceover, we can get into all of this more. I know this is a very long rambling answer. But <laughs> it, it's, it's funny how different times, different techniques help you, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and to be honest, I actually did about four or five different approaches. So, you know, I had a couple of takes of I'm playing every character. And I had a couple of takes of um, I did the Orco dialogue in my natural speaking voice, and then I ran it through an app and pitched it up and made it sound a little bit more like the filmation voice. Oh, and so then you I did tried a couple modulation. Like I tried genre. everything. Okay. I tried everything because I said I don't know what they're looking for. I don't know how much they want to do this in post. You know, do they want someone who can sound like Orco, or do they want someone who is giving line readings and then they'll make them sound like Orco in post? Because the 2000X series and the Filmation series, both, it was a post effect. You had someone playing the character emotionally, you know, and putting feeling into the line readings. But the voice as we know it was entirely done in editing. Um, and it had that sort of auto-tuned effect, right? And I didn't know which they would want. So I, I tried it every way. And I said, is it better if I'm doing the lines? I, I, I so badly wanted to do this. That the thing that's often scary about um, auditioning, especially when you're recording something yourself and sending it in rather than meeting with someone in person, is you often only get one bite at the apple. And back in the days pre-pandemic, when you would go into physical rooms to audition with other people, you would try something and the people would go, I see what you're doing, but that's actually not quite right. Can you try it this way instead? And then they get to see you do the version they want and see if you took direction well and all of that. With self-taping, as they call it, you basically get one shot. And if you picked the wrong road to go down, even if you executed it well, they'll go, well, that's not the right thing. So I said, let me do every single version of this possible and then send them sort of the options of, here's the menagerie of, of what I could possibly do with this. And then I, I sent it in. I didn't hear anything for maybe a week or two. I assumed, I guess this is not happening and I should move on. And then I got the email that I'd gotten the role on Halloween of 2019. Mm. I think I started recording it January 2020. They announced the cast February. Uh, it was Valentine's Day was when that post came out. So um, that's how you're notified via email. I mean, um, you know, I'm always thinking you find out like in a cool way, you know, versus just through an email or even through an, um, an agent or a casting agent, you know, maybe I'm just romanticizing the process. Yeah. 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 But I'm it imagining a call from Kevin Smith or Ted Biaselli and saying, it depends. I've gotten those calls as well. Okay. This was one where it was, it was a moving train. So it was basically one email that had a lot of people CC'd on it that just said, uh, uh, Griffin, excellent news. You have been offered the role of Warco. Wow. Which of these times are available for you to record? It was like, you know, I'm finding out about it on a Friday and I'm scheduling for the following Monday or Tuesday to do it. And it- Print frame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but there, was, there was less of the sort of pomp and circumstance excitement because I think it was a little like down to brass tacks. This thing has to go. Uh, and, and from that moment I'm activated, I don't even know how they want me to do it of all the different takes I sent in, you know? 
I go, well, they chose they to, want you to do it. That's they've it. chosen to give me the part, which I'm very like I'm thrilled about, but mm -hmm. I don't even know what they want. So I'm I'm that whole weekend practicing uh, all the different versions of it. Yeah, until mm. I get in there. You know, you were talking about the character and mm. um, the the love and hate, right? That people feel towards Orko. And yeah. um, for me, I was, you know, remember when, sure you do, when Kevin Smith was saying, I'm going to make sure all you kids get tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> of, you know, you're going to love Orko so much. He's going to be so metal. You're going to want a tattoo. And and I actually became one of those people that um, became a oracle fan uh later in life because mm -hmm. of masters universe revelation and i'll explain um so in masters of the universe revelation as you know being a filmation fan um there were some creative liberties taken yeah. with the oracle character mm -hmm. um you know while it was promoted it was highlighted that the series was a spiritual sequel to the classic 1983 filmation series mm -hmm. he man the masters of the universe and I believe it was during a live stream with Toy Galaxy and Ted Biaselli, um, executive producer, Ted Biaselli, uh, talked about how the show pretty much honored all the events, uh, or Masters of the Universe Revelation honored all the events of the mm -hmm. classic TV show, less three creative liberties taken. And one of those creative liberties was Orko. And um, they were stuck on this idea, you know, why in the world would Orko leave Trala for Eternia. Right. When on Trala, he was a powerful wizard. Um, or so he a, always would claim. Yeah. Well, I think he was because, well, look, he, he had a girlfriend, right? Yes, yes, he did. And, he was certainly powerful in that one area, if nothing else. <laughs> and yeah. um, he was certainly, he had a lot of fans, if I remember, yeah. and, um, you know, had this great reputation about him. And, yes. um, so why would Orko leave his family, leave his friends, leave his girlfriend just to become, you know, this court jester of, yeah. of mockery? And it was better to have an Orko inept on his home planet as well, you know, trying to win the approval of his parents and live up to that Oracle name, yeah. which is a source of bonding with Prince Adam, who was also struggling for yeah. Yeah, yeah. approval from his parents, or at yeah. least his father, right, King Randall? Well, and, and also I think... The biggest thing that, and I, you've now gotten to watch all the Revolution episodes, not to cut you off, but I think the biggest thematic um, force behind both of these seasons is they're, they're, it's a show about legacies, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a show about characters that have legacies placed upon them and the pressures of those legacies. So, you know, Teela and the Sorceress and Adam with the notion of becoming king someday. Um, the villain, uh, one of the main villains of Revolution, who I won't say because it's a bit of a spoiler. But We're not Orko in that section yet, yeah. right? But Orko fits in thematically in the same way of someone who this, these great expectations were placed upon, and perhaps struggled to live up to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So as a kid, yeah, in the cartoon, um, Orko just got in the way of me spending more time with He-Man, as you he I, I think that's how many people felt, yeah. yeah. But then as an adult, you know, I could never find the character relatable before. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like like saying, okay, you got this girlfriend, you're a master wizard at home, everyone looks up to you, but here in Eternia, everyone laughs at your ineptness 
and I should feel yeah. more bad for you for that. So it wasn't until revolution, uh, excuse me, revelation course corrected that character. And we had this like beautiful moment in Trala with Lynn where Orko was supposed to be the Oracle, but couldn't do anything right is when I finally, finally, after what was that? 39 years. Yeah. Connected with little bugger and then loved him. Yeah. So it really was. I mean, Kevin Smith was trying to execute this plan. And for me, that came true. Or suddenly I was always just sort of, you know, down on Orko. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't hate him, but I didn't love him. But now yeah. I love him because I can yeah. relate to him finally. I mean, I, I, I appreciate everything said. I agree with it uh, strongly. I know most of uh, what you're saying, the credit goes to, to Kevin and the writers. But that was definitely... That was my abstract goal and why I want to play the character so badly is I like that kind of um, uh, challenge as an actor. I like to try to get the audience on board with a character to, to lower their defenses and make them care for a character they maybe thought they could never care for. I, I think that's an interesting sort of challenge to do as an actor. Um, and so I may be attracted to characters that on their face kind of present that that sort of difficulty um you did a great job too thank you but but i had that sort of abstract goal and then i got the part as i said i got this email mm -hmm. and attached to the email were the scripts and i devoured them and i went like well i didn't know they were going to give me this to play like this now now my work is kind of easy you know i i my my sort of dumb metaphor for acting very often is um it, it's all like like hunting for treasure, right? You're trying to find like what's what's the gold of this character that I'm trying to dig up, and sometimes you read something and you go, "This is a treasure map. I know where the X is. I know where it's buried. It might be hard work to dig and get there to the bottom of it, and lift this chest up, but I know exactly where I'm digging." And when things are poorly written, it feels like you're just getting a note that says, please look for treasure. And now you're on the beach with a metal detector and you're digging everywhere and you spend hours digging a hole that goes nowhere and then you have to dig a new one or whatever. And so it's always much better to read something and go, I know exactly where to dig and I know what I'm going to find there, right? And you read the yeah. script and you go, well, they're offering me the exact thing I wanted to try to do here. It felt like a perfect construction for this character. I think, you know, as you said, there, there was a real... Um, there was a real focus from everyone working on both of these shows to try to not just pay respect to the history of Motu, but really try to incorporate as much of it as they could, to not be uh, ignorant of all the different corners. And, and beyond that, even, I think, to try to challenge themselves to tie together corners that used to be uh, disparate. Because um, one of the things that's really tricky about Motu, in my opinion, is basically from the get-go, um, the lore, the canon, is at odds with itself. Unlike something like, say, Marvel Comics or, you know, most source materials where it starts at one place and whoever is writing whatever the first medium is that these characters exist in, that's basically the definitive text, the starter text, and then things are built on top of it and they're spread out. But you're able to go, well... You know, the, the Stanley Jack Kirby run a Fantastic Four. That's really the important thing that everything else springs from. And anything that's added later in Hanna-Barbera cartoons or this or that, that's secondary, you know, pick and choose. Um, 
Motu, it's like, as, as I'm sure you know, was developed in this very sort of disjointed way where you have a team working on the toys and you have a team working on the mini comics. And then you have, you know, after those two things are kind of happening parallel to each other, you then have Lou Scheimer and Filmation brought in to develop the cartoon show. And they're given a lot of autonomy to develop a lot of things further that weren't part of the toy line, like the Sorceress and Orko. Um, and, and so you basically, from the get-go, had three similar but slightly different paths that these stories were being developed on. Um, and I think that means, as much as these series have tried in a way that really excites me to pull those things together and also pull things from uh, the live action movie and pull things from the classics bios and pull from all these different areas, um, there are always going to be things that don't totally fit together, right? Yeah. And the other part of this is it was not, you know, we, we were talking earlier about who would have the foresight to know to keep the nightlight in mint condition? Who would know it would be that important 40 years later, right? I think the people working on all these different areas of Motu had no idea that we would be here obsessing over 40 years later, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there are certain parts of like these sacred texts that you have to try to figure out how to line up. And so I think it's a struggle sometimes to tell new stories in Motu where if you're trying to take everything that's ever been said as uh, irrefutable word, some of it's going to butt up against each other. And I think you look at Orko in that way, and you're like, well, there's something that kind of doesn't make sense here about this guy, right? I mean, even just the way you were describing him of, he's telling me he's this all-powerful wizard, he's got this cool girlfriend, and it's like, yeah, you're making him sound like that guy who lies in high school and is like, well, actually, like on the weekends, I'm like, I got my cool girlfriend who's in Trala, and I scored like 20 touchdowns, but none of you saw it. You know, like there's this sort of part well, of that would be awesome, but we actually saw it in episodes. We totally. that girlfriend was real. No, Drielle exists. No, of course, yeah. I'm I'm yeah. not denying her for a second. <laughs> but there was, you know, there's some gray area there, and I, you know, there's all these different readings of him. But the reality is, they were a lot of episodes, and a lot of it they were making up as they went along. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we said, Orca wasn't even in the mini comics or the toys to begin with. All these sorts of things. So I think it just makes sense. When you're when you're telling new stories around existing characters and properties, I think there's a certain amount of like to go back to my treasure hunting metaphor. Uh, there's a certain amount of like archaeology and excavation you have to do, right? You have to sort of take a step back and like look at the fossils you've dug up and go like, okay, wait. So how does this logically fit together? How do you like build something new out of all of this? And it just felt very apparent to me when I read it, even though it was different than what I had knew uh, from uh, what I'd known from Orko uh, as a character in the past. I went, this makes so much emotional sense that this is his story. That oh, it was great that you guys did yes. that. Yeah, for it, me, feels, the, the power it felt like a necessary change to me. Yeah. Yeah, the power of Motu, I think, is this, the strength of Motu is its many incarnations. And yes, I, really I agree. Well, know of another ip that i can say that about you know i've been yeah. in other fandoms that they'll have those canon battles you know mm -hmm. no that didn't happen that's old continuity and this is the current continuity and and everything is so structured and everything else is just fan fiction but here yeah. you know we have like 
Filmation, we have the original mini comics, we have the DC comics, we have right. New Adventures, we have the movie, the 1987 yes. movie, yeah. the 2002 series, the mm -hmm. classic bios. I mean, yeah. we have so much that you can pick what you like. And yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like it's like getting the toys, right? Mm -hmm. And it's your world. You could play with them how you want to. When I, Griffin, when I got um, many faces, I thought he was a villain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, uh, be honest with you, I never like read the many comics. You know, I was yeah. just sort of, um, you know, rip the figure out and start playing. You know, and I yeah. saw that green monster face, and I'm like, this thing's a villain, and yeah. that scary robot. So that's the way I played, and and I think like the the lore is that way too, and it's so marvelous. I've never witnessed that anywhere else i think yeah no i agree with that and even i mean just to to go back to the toys yeah. like infamously the the paintings on the card backs barely match the original figures you know the mm -hmm. orco or not the orco i'm sorry the merman that you're playing with looks so different than the merman that's painted on the back of the box and so there are these internal cannons that are being built in the head of every kid who's engaging with this stuff at the first time I mean, you know, I, I go to conventions. I went to PowerCon a couple years ago when the first season came out. And you talk to people, and it's like, I met a guy who, and it's not like this guy's a one-off. There are tons of guys like this, but who was like mini-comic purist. For him, it was like, he likes the canon of the sort of what's now dubbed Ular, right? Yeah. That that He-Man was like a guy in a cave from a tribe who met the green goddess. He was basically just like a barbarian mm -hmm. who was handed the harness and the sword and got this power. And it's like that was his version of it. And for him, once the mini comics started developing further, once they started linking into filmation, once Prince Adam answered, he was out. And I'm like, that's a guy who's out at the earliest possible moment you could be out, right? For him, it's the absolute first step of the thing was right for him, and then at that point, the story starts to negate itself, and for him, he's out. And I don't view that as a negative. I'm like, I think it's what's interesting is, by the very nature of this thing being set up almost in this accidental choose-your-own-adventure way, and it also being a property that, like, you know the toys existed before the cartoon. It's why the mini comics were created because Mattel was worried kids would need some narrative, but some kids are reading the mini comics and some kids like you aren't and are creating their own things. And it's like all evolving in real time. And I think, you know, I, I find canon battles often very exhausting. And I, it's not that I don't think it matters because I do, but I also think especially the era we're living in, we're living in like such an absurd, um, uh, there's so much more of this stuff being made than we ever could have imagined when we were kids, right? Yeah. Like it, it's sort of the degree to which we're all spoiled of, of just like all of these characters and properties that we were in love with, not only being made lovingly at large scales, but being made over and over and over again. You know, all these things existing. The fact that there's now a place, you know, and, and we're two dorks talking about a dorky subject, but you're like, the fact that like a multiverse is a concept that any layperson on the street understands now. Who and understands. Who would have thought, right? That, that for me, the beauty of that is like, all of this becomes less sacrosanct because when you're in the 90s, 
and Batman and Robin comes out and it bombs and people hate it, right? Mm. The feeling is, well, now we're not going to get Batman movies ever again. You know, there was genuinely this feeling of they have ruined Batman movies forever. That was it. We had a good run. Batman's on ice. Over. And when Batman Begins comes out seven years later, it felt like an eternity. We had to go seven years. We thought we'd maybe never get another Batman movie. How are they going to reboot this? And then now it's like we're living in a time with three Jokers existing simultaneously, just in live action movies, you know? And so I think I, I think there's something freeing to as much as Revelation and Revolution are trying to pull from everything that Motu's ever been and trying to tell this big grand story. This is at the end of the day, just a story. It is a version. And there have been many before and there will be many after it. And there are many happening simultaneously to mm-hmm. our show that are different, you know? But it just felt like for, yeah, for the story that everyone wanted to tell, those changes to Orko felt really um, logical. And once again, I had no part in deciding on those changes. But when I read them, I went, that makes so much sense. And this lines up so thoroughly with how I would want to play this guy. You know, what what I would want to get to here, because even Kevin's saying, I'm sorry for another long run on answer, but that, you know, we want to make the badass Orko that people get tattoos of, that win people over who used to dislike Orko. The thing I love is they didn't choose to do that by making Orko incredibly metal, right? They didn't choose to do that by having Orko hulk out, get tough, and become a traditional kind of badass. Mm-hmm. It, it was fundamentally the same character, right? And it's a backstory that sort of makes sense with everything he's been before, but also this, this sort of badass moment is this moment of very vulnerable sacrifice for him. You know, I mean, he is displaying his power on a scale we had never seen before. That is cool and impressive. But the bigger thing is that he is going into a situation which he knows he's overpowered. The badass thing is that there's some degree of conscious sacrifice in what he's doing. And his final words as he's fighting Scareglow are him telling his friends how much he loves them which is very in line with what Filmation was. You know, it's the kind of stuff that people found annoying about Orko. of like, oh, he's really sappy and he's goofy and he's silly and whatever. And I just love being able to create a context around that in which the same type of thing, the stakes have elevated and the emotion is elevated, but you're not betraying who he was. You're not turning him into something different. Yeah. You know, that line, you know, why he's why he's doing magic like a badass um, when yeah. he says, you know, look, Lynn, I'm doing it. You know, that brings him back to, that's the connection for me. That's the, you know, that he's never, he's not this badass intro, no. you know, no. that he's, but he realized if he just believes in himself a little, that's. Um, well, yeah. And I love that moment because it's, it's him calling out that he's even surprised that he's pulling it off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like a little kid saying, like, look, I'm walking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Mm. You know, and speaking of, of look, Lynn and all that, and mm-hmm. um, I can't help but feel bad for you, meaning, well, I saw this wonderful video where um, actor Mark Hamill and Lena Headey were voicing their roles for... Mm-hmm. Masters of the Universe Revelation in the same studio, you know, yeah. f- feeding off each other's energy, 
and then boom, you know, the, the pandemic lockdown happened and not to trivialize the true impact because sure. our hearts um, pour out to all the families that uh, lost loved ones during that mess. That is really what's important here. But yeah. recognizing that and looking beyond it, would you have been in the booth to say opposite Lena Headey and doing no. that scene? You no, were- no, no, no. I mean, we there are, there are larger repercussions of this, but um, uh, I, I live in New York. I'm based out of New York. Most of the voice cast was in LA. I think I may be the only person of the main cast who is East Coast based. Um, so it was always going to be you you very very rarely if ever in voice acting get to work with other actors that's like a really kind of special treat there are a couple shows the simpsons i know for a long time if they don't still will record together bob's burgers will record together it more often happens in comedy where they specifically want certain timings or certainly sometimes if there is not even the whole cast but like Timon and Pumbaa, they want the two of them recording together because the banter is so aligned like that. I so think... Is, so is that relatively new based on technology? Like, say, 15 years ago, it was a mandatory thing to be... To be separate or to be together? Together. Um, I think it's always... It's less about technology, honestly, and it's more about editing. That the art of voice acting is so much weirdly about giving people puzzle pieces you know you're you're working in such an odd order because it's basically you know scripts then in some cases storyboards second in some cases voice record second then storyboards then animation and then they go back around and have you re-record certain things based on how the animation is shaking out um but part of it is it's like your job as a voice actor is to cut out a bunch of different puzzle pieces of different shapes and leave them a bunch of options so that they can then later go, Oh, you know what? We actually need the piece with this side coming off so that could fit into this piece of what this other person did and scheduling, you know, it's hard to get a whole cast of people in the same room at the same time, but it's also just, um, it's, it's easier editing to cut something together to make it sound like it's overlapping than it is to have two people talking and then split it up later if you need it to be. Oh, and here I thought you were missing out. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, I, look, I would love to uh, get to work with any of the other people in this cast. It's not something where I feel like I'm being left out. Okay. I think Mark and Lena working together was probably like a rare occurrence and a lucky sort of happenstance that they realized, oh, their interplay is really important together. We might get something special if we have them in the same room for a couple of these scenes. Um, scheduling wise, they're both available. But I think basically everyone else in the cast did their stuff solo. The exception to that being when most of the people were in LA, if they could realize, oh, he's coming in at 12.15, she's coming in at 12.30, maybe we could get them to overlap for a second. I knew I was always going to be pretty isolated just by nature being on the other side of the country. Even before the shutdown. Yeah. 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 I mean, I had done, I mean, I'm sorry for giving you another very long winded answer, but I feel like I had done at least 80% of my recording before the lockdown started. 
Okay. So as I said, I started recording in January. I think I had maybe two sessions in January where I really did the bulk of everything, where you have these marathon days where you're doing like five episodes in a row. And obviously Orco's in different episodes to different degrees of that first season. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I had done the bulk of everything before the lockdown happened. And then the animation process takes so long. And then they sort of circled back you know, I'd done most of it in January and February, and then maybe towards the end of that year, October or November, they brought me back in, and it was the first time I had been back in a studio since the lockdown had started. Because there were a couple other animated shows I was on at the time that still needed new records done. And those I had to do in my bedroom, like underneath bed sheets. You'd have to make your own sort of soundproofing with a comforter. You know, you get on like a stream yard like we're on right now. And Yeah, I think I saw Tiffany on social media. Yeah. Making out of a closet, maybe. Yes, right. They And they guide you through it because they've now done it with a bunch of other people. But they're like directing you over Zoom or stream yard. And they're telling you, we find it helps if you put two pillows over your head. We find <laughs> it's better if you close the door and you have more winter jackets around you all these sorts of stuff. So there wow. were other shows I had to do that for, which is tough. It's also just tough. I find it's tough for something to feel professional when it's happening in your bedroom or in your closet, you know, whatever <laughs> degree of like headspace. I can imagine it. you under like a feather bed with a flashlight. No, no, it was and it was like one hand holding the comforter up and then a mic here and a screen here and all this sort of stuff. It feels very silly. I was very lucky in spite of the horrible circumstances of the world at that time. Yeah, yeah, I got all of my proper recording done before lockdown. And the moment that they needed me to come in and do pickups or rewrites was when they had sort of figured out the protocols to be able to safely have me go in a studio again, which was basically the safest form of acting you could do at that point. Cause it's like a hermetic airtight booth by yourself that they sanitize for an hour before and after you get in there. Um, so, so I, I, all this to say, um, it was an isolated process, but I don't think that was changed at all by the pandemic. The thing I do feel like I missed out on, which is just as a dork was the bummer for me, was, um, you know, we would have gone to San Diego Comic-Con as a cast, and I would have gotten to hang out with these people. You know, we would have done this rung of press, this rung of press. There was all the press things and between the pandemic and then the uh, SAG and WGA strikes uh, yeah. last year. In both cases, there were itineraries planned where I was like, I'm going to get to sit at a table with him and her and her. Yeah, all you were going to do the round table. Yeah. yeah. And they were going to announce Keith uh, David, right? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> I was going to do, uh, th there was a plan to do, we were going to do a panel at San Diego. But I know afterwards there was going to be a signing of the new poster. And I think it was going to be Kevin, who's the one guy I've got to spend a lot of time with now in, in person. Because um, he spends so much time in, in Jersey on the East Coast. Um, but I think it was just going to be Kevin, Keith, David, and I. And I was like texting all my friends like, you, you're not going to believe this. I'm going to get to go to Comic-Con and just sit at a table with Keith, David for like two hours. This is my dream is just to talk to this guy about everything, about his entire career. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the, I think anytime you get to record with any other actor in, in, in voiceover, in animation, 
that's like a very rare gift. It is not the norm. It is not expected. I've not been lucky enough to have that happen yet. Maybe at some point it will. Uh, very often when I was doing my records, I was doing them with Kevin playing the other parts, who's really good at playing the other parts, or Colette Sunderman, who's the voice director on the show and is really good at playing the other parts. But also to this sort of puzzle piece end, um, sometimes it helps if they're giving you the line in and you're saying the line afterwards. Sometimes it helps if you run a page of dialogue back and forth just for rhythm or whatever it is. Sure. More often than not, you're going one line at a time. You're taking it in isolation, you know? And either they give you the cue and then you say it three times in a row and they say, let's try it like this. And then you do it another three times in a row. But the process is very often you go one line by line. It's amazing and, how it sounds put together. You know, yeah, it really and, sounds and, like you're all in a room doing like a, a cast. I know. Script I know. It's, it's, it's a weird process. I love it, frankly. It's, it's my favorite kind of acting I've ever done. I, really? like when I so, started, yeah, when I started doing voice, voice acting, acting over. Absolutely. Like okay. unquestionably. When, and there are, there are certain aspects of what I now call body acting. <laughs> my own uh, very informal turn, uh, human body acting. There are certain things that I love that you don't get out of voice acting. The number one is that chemistry with another person, Sure. you know, and, and there's the, the feeling of staying in a moment and playing a scene and just staying there and all that sort of stuff that is fun. But there is something very freeing for me about voice acting and even the aspects of it that are weirdly technical, I find very um, exciting. But, but yes, no, you do, you, I find most good shows and certainly Motu works this way, uh, when you're working with good people, they very much say, how, how are you most comfortable working? What's best for you? Would you rather I read every other line with you and we go through it straight as a scene and then we reset and go back to the beginning of the scene? Would you rather take it one line at a time? Would you rather do each take we record is you saying the line five times and then we give you notes wow. and part of the flexibility of it is they go what would it sound like if there's like an angrier version and then you give them five angrier versions in a row and sometimes they go nah, that doesn't work or they go interesting option we have that we know we have that or sometimes they go oh no that's good there's something there and maybe let's push it further you know so not only are you not doing it in the same room as other people, but you're also trying different versions of it all the time rather than committing to one, mm. which I like because I'm a very anxious person and a sort of obsessive perfectionist in a lot of ways. And when you're trying to, when you're on camera and you're trying to get the perfect take, which doesn't exist, it's a, an illusion, right? Yeah. Um, that perfect take is relying on everything working perfectly all at once. It's not just you doing everything you're aiming to do as an actor, but it's you being in sync with the other actors in the scene. It's the lighting working. It's the mics not malfunctioning. <laughs> it's the camera movements happening at the right time. It's all that sort of stuff. There's so many X factors versus what I love about voice acting is you, you're kind of given your space. Here's your room. Here's your time. Give us everything you've got. Try every version of it. You hand it all over to them. 
And then like a year and a half later, they bring you back this result all meshed together and you go, wow, I don't even remember doing that. Or that plays so much differently than I thought when it's drawn out now. Or now that I get to hear what the other person in the scene is doing. You know, it's funny how you were communicating how well you respond to the uh, direction and trying it different ways. It just takes me back to um, the 40th anniversary San Diego Comic-Con event mm -hmm. <laughs> where William Shatner was like the opposite. You know, Kevin Smith recounted that story where he's like, you know, Kevin, <laughs> let me do this. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, and at 90, geez, 90 years old, I think he is, I you know, he's three. Oh, really? Wow. You know what? I, let's, yeah. let's jump right into that spoiler section, right? Please. Here, so we can just yeah, yeah. talk about him. So um, if you haven't watched Masters of the Universe Revolution yet and don't want it spoiled, I recommend uh, wherever you're listening or watching this podcast, press pause, go watch it on Netflix. It's out right now. And then come back and hit that resume button because there's plenty of spoilers ahead. So we were saying like he's like 93. Yeah. I'll tell you. I tell you, he has his own way of working. He he comes in with his method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's he's basically like a a knight in the in, in the industry. You yep. know, mm -hmm. he hasn't been knighted. I don't think he's not Sir no. William Shatner. I don't know what the but... Canadian form of knighting is. <laughs> I don't know either. Yeah. So generally speaking, so like mm -hmm. Masters of the Universe Revelation, Masters of the Universe Revolution, I absolutely loved, but it almost felt like a different animal to me to some degree tonally um in a way this is not gonna be the best example but like a movie alien to aliens yeah you know, yeah in a way yeah but basically um less introspection and prose this time around and more mm -hmm. excitement and mayhem you know and both are winning formulas um but did anything strike you did you notice anything personally when you first read that revolution script I, you know, reading it, it, it's not like it felt very different in format. There's, I mean, there's obviously the change in the the amount of episodes, right? And thus, like, the amount of real estate there exists to tell this story. Um, you know, I think there's a misconception that um, because of the way Revelation was released, that those were two different seasons, you know? I mean, I, I, I can't, I don't even remember if still on Netflix, it's listed as a part one, part two, or it's now just all listed as season one. So I have screenshots Griffin, yeah. in some countries overseas. It's listed as season one and season yeah. two. So at first people were like telling other fans, what are you crazy? It's part one, part two, you yes. idiot, you know? And I'm like, guys, <laughs> you know, well, if they're from a different country, this is how it's been presented to them. Yes, and it's Netflix. I mean, I'm talking Netflix. No, right? no, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I will just say um, that was the one area that was seriously affected by um, the pandemic was it, it disrupted the shift to work from home, slowed down the animation cycle. And those 10 episodes were always constructed, written, outlined, designed, plotted to all come out on the same day. The opportunity for people to watch all 10 at once if they wanted to, to just binge the whole thing and take it in as one long five-hour story. Um, and that got uh, bumped because of the pandemic and changes in workflow and all of that. And I think 
I, funny enough, I think the big thing was um, because lead times on toys are so long, the first wave of the Revelation Masterverse figures were going to be hitting shelves at that date when they had originally intended for all 10 episodes to come out. Yeah, they um, actually came out a month before in June. Right. And so they knew, I mean, the point was summer 2021 was a a, a, a goal they had to hit. Uh, Griffin, they had Skelegon as well, the first wave figure. I, I, like, I, I have my own complaints about that. I don't quite <laughs> understand what was going on there. I have never gotten a full explanation of why they would do that. It felt mm. like a very bizarre choice. Yes. Um, but yes, yes, that was on shelves early. Um, they, they had just set the toys to come out in conjunction with the show. They knew mm. all 10 episodes weren't going to be ready at that point in time. And the choice was made to cut it in the middle. We can get the first five 100% done by the original date. Mm. Um, the funny thing is, I think when people, I know this is a very circuitous answer to what you asked me. But um, when people uh, saw the second half of season one of Revelation and projected, oh, this plot point is a response to the reaction from the fans to part one, uh, you know, whatever the dates were, Revelation part one comes out on a Friday. That following Monday, I did my final voice record session for part two. And at that point, the animation was 99.9% done. The only reason I was doing a voice record session that late, that close to it being finished, was because they realized in season one that because Orko doesn't have a mouth, it is easier to change his dialogue later. The Scareglow poem, right? The nursery rhyme. Correct. Exactly. So there were things where they would look at scenes and go, huh, we, we, we're missing a line here that would make sense of this scene. To have any other character say it would cost a lot of money and take a lot of time to reanimate their faces. Orko, we can just put the words in there and try to match up to what his body's doing at that point in time. So see, all of season one was almost ready. And they had to push it a little bit rather than push the first half all this to be said season two revolution is the first thing written since people have gotten to watch all of season one so there definitely was some consideration about what do people like in the season what do people dislike in the season all of that i think it's very much still what was part of the larger intent when they sort of thought out a multi-season arc for this show mm -hmm. um but the first thing you notice is like oh it's five episodes it's going to move a lot faster when I get these scripts and I hear it's only a five episode season, and to be clear, this isn't what happened with season one. There's not a secret part two, second half of the season coming later. This Come on, is I was hoping for you to say that. This is the full season as it is right now. You know, I, that's what I was secretly hoping for the longest time that you yes. and the rest of the team, you know, had this in the can and like five months later, you'd be surprised. You Look, know? I, I wish, but I also think to a certain degree, not communicating that up front with season one was a bit of a problem. Um, I, well, I, I wish think there'd been a little bit more clarity in communication. Well, I think it would work if it was more defined a story. Yes. I mean, 
in all, I mean, I loved Masters of the Universe Revelation, but I can remove myself and understand mm -hmm. people who are upset with He-Man being killed. Yes. Ended part one or season one, depending yes. on where you lived, with He-Man being stabbed and looking like he was killed again. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, you know, in a vacuum. Right. I can see how that can frustrate some people where, you know, you don't. I, I, to I totally get it. I like completely get it. And that was obviously designed to be a somewhat shocking cliffhanger moment. But as the original intent was that moment would be followed by a button that says autoplay next episode. And episode six was right there to begin right, right away. Where in Revolution, you had yeah. that beginning, you have a middle and an end, and it yes. doesn't feel like it's a cliffhanger, that you right. have a complete story. That's my thing. I mean, I, I was a little worried seeing it was only five episodes. Is this going to feel really rushed? Is it going to feel really crammed? Or the opposite, are they going to have to simplify their story to only fit five episodes? And I feel like it's a real hearty meal. I feel like there's a lot going on there. There's probably more action relative to dialogue, as as you said, but I also don't think that's some kind of um, strategic shift. I think that's a matter of when when there's less space to tell the story, it's it's show don't tell. You know, it's how mm. can you convey a lot of this through action, not just literal fighting action, but also just through character behavior and all of that. Um, but I also think, you know, a, a friend of mine uh, told me his complaint with watching Revelation, which was interesting because I felt like I hadn't heard this um, spelled out this way by anyone, but it makes a lot of sense to me. That he was watching the first episode of Revelation that ends with the sort of twist of He-Man and Skeletor killing each other in battle, right? And yeah. he said to me, uh, my friend Christian said, um, I, like, I love that as a story twist, and I get where it's coming from, and this place of, uh, well, the Filmation series would just reset the battle over and over again, because A, they couldn't really fight because of censorship and you know, <laughs> violence and Saturday morning guidelines and all of that, so we're getting to see the real knockdown, drag-out sword fights that we never got to see on the original show, but B the stakes were always a little bit nerfed because it's a cartoon show. It has to reset back to status quo. Mm -hmm. And let's take ownership of what this show could do that the original show couldn't do, which is have the terrible thing happen in the first episode. And what happens if the terrible thing happens? And how is the universe shaken up by that? What are all the ripple effects of that? And he said, but I just wish there was more status quo. I was so happy to be watching a new Motu cartoon for the first time in like, almost 20 years, that when I'm watching the first part where everything's normal before it gets disrupted, I was a little bit frustrated that I didn't get more of the normal. And as you said, the thinking creatively was, well, the normal is the previous shows you've watched. The normal is the history that you're bringing to it. The normal is the mini comics. It's Filmation. It's Mike Young Productions. It's the toys you had. It's the DC Comics. It's The normal is the history of Motu that you're holding on to in the back of your head before you watch the show. And this is a sequel to all of that, to the history of Motu, which is why there's sort of this wild second act twist, because it's like this is the second act to the last 40 years of stuff, right? 
Um, I think what you get in Revolution is that now we're making a sequel to our first season. So A, your first season is everything disrupted. Everything goes wrong, right? The world is turned upside down. Every character is tested. People die and come back from the dead and evolve and transform and devolve and all these sorts of things. By the end of season one, we got to this place where uh, you, have, you have a new normal, right? right? Some things have reset to the way we know them. Some things are now a little bit different than they were before, like Tila being the sorceress, but that's something that was always kind of destined to happen. Yes. And revolution, you get to start out with this new normal where, you know, there are dramatic things that happen right off the bat in episode one, but I don't think anyone's going to view any of these moves as rug pulls because now we've sort of been able to build our own story. It's our own world. It's our own sort of corner of the Motu universe. And we're building off of that. By the way, you say rug pull and it reminds yeah. me of the, um, the Lynn line, you know, you're nothing but a bait and switch. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's a little meta. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I, 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 my, my feeling in all of that, I'll speak with full transparency here, right? Cause like I'm, I'm obviously biased because I work on this show, but mm -hmm. that having been said, I am a, a nearly lifelong fan of this brand. I genuinely am. I, I really enjoy this show. I watch it and I like enjoy it as a fan, uh, away from my own contribution. And I feel very invested in the project and I like everyone who works on it, but it's not like I'm a writer. You know, I'm receiving the scripts and reading them the first, the first time the way many are going to watch the episodes for the first time going, I don't know what happens next. I'm curious, you know, am I going to like that? Am I going to like this? There's certain things I like more or less than other things, what have you. Um, but when I read the, the revelation script and I got to the end of episode one, I went, that's going to flip people out. Like I, I wasn't naive about it. I, I went, if people are going to flip out when they see that, I was also assuming, I thought, well, this is the benefit of being on Netflix. If this was airing on Cartoon Network in 2002, if this was part of the Friday Toonami block and episode one ends with the two of them dying, and then you're told, wait a week until episode two, I think there would be protests in the streets. I thought this is the benefit of binging and streaming, that it's all there to watch at once. That was obviously disrupted. But the bait and switch thing, I think, you know, yes, there's, there's a meta joke there. There's a knowing joke there. But it's more, if you tell people what the rug pull is going to be, then it has no effectiveness as a story. It wasn't like there was an active sense of deception in terms of we're trying to sell people a false bill of goods, trick them into watching our show. It was, you can't tell them going in what the surprises are going to be. You know, you don't want to describe yeah. the roller coaster. And especially because part of the design was to build a season where you start out with status quo, you basically deconstruct everything in order to reconstruct it again. It was it was like treated like it was some sort of devious intent to fool everyone by which is it, it whoa, you know wasn't like, yeah and it, look yeah. people are allowed to dislike it I'm not going to tell anyone they absolutely. were wrong about it but yeah it's it, the only stuff that irks me is is the projection of intent like that right because I I read way too much of the response 
just because I've already been online in these corners of the internet, following these accounts, looking at these videos, what have you. And, you know, I, I, I read many criticisms that I disagree with, but I think are entirely val valid and well thought out, well articulated. Sure. But any sort of assumption of what the strategy was on the part of the people making the show, I felt was 99.9% .9 of the time wildly off base. And it was really just in the name of trying to tell a story that would be surprising to people that they, so that they could experience it for themselves in real time while mm -hmm. watching it. Yeah. Uh, Kevin was pretty genuine. He was trying to, like you said, he was just trying to hide his big secret that He-Man was going to be killed and yeah. it was going to be a world without He-Man story. Right. Um, he did consciously try to insert He-Man in every episode. If it was yeah. through flashbacks or, um, uh, fear he man, even that's confronting Tila yeah. down in and, and, and a lot of Adam. Well, that's that was the great thing I thought with yeah. Revelation is like I was mentioning to you with Orko, is Masters of the Universe Revelation was the first time I actually fell in love with Adam. Adam was yeah. another character yeah. on that formation show, at least as a kid. I was like, All right, turn to He Man, turn it, turn into He Man. Yeah. I mean, I didn't dislike him, but he wasn't my favorite. But until I learned about the heart. And the sacrifice, this this show really presented it to me that I was just like, wow, Adam's like one of my favorite characters now. You know, I'm not wishing him away on the screen. I want yeah. him to be Adam. I want to realize that this character's greatest power is his ability to give up the power. Yes, yes. It, it's kind of classic Spider-Man No More stuff, mm. which I love. I mean, it's like, it, it's a, it's a kind of cornerstone of, fantasy, superhero, sci-fi, you know, pulp storytelling is the second story, you kind of, you know, you have your origin stories, you have your understanding of the power, acquisition of the power, all that sort of stuff. And then the most interesting way to test your characters are what if you take away the thing? Who are they without that, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it was like, you know, all of that was done as it's one of those things that I find so interesting about Motu is that it's called Masters of the Universe. And we casually call it He-Man a lot, right? And the filmation show was called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. But the center of the title has always been the Masters of the Universe. It has been this universe. It has been this collection of characters. And it's sort of like removing He-Man from the equation in Revelation. I know we said we were getting into revolution spoilers and now we're just <laughs> doubling down on Revelation. But it allows you to test the other characters in interesting ways. Yeah. Who are all of them without him? And who is Adam without He-Man, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it, yeah, and it's all in service of trying to get to back to status quo, but back to status quo with a sort of new understanding, you know? And, and I think Revolution has that where you're just like, these are characters who have now gone through the whole journey of Revelation and feel a lot more secure in who they are. They're more clearly defined in who they are and what their roles are. Um, but, th but then, you know, I think very cleverly, Kevin and all the writers came up with some really good tests of these characters. So we're talking about the sort of the expectations, the destiny, you know, part of Adam, it's right there in his creation is he's a prince. Mm -hmm. At some point he needs to become a king. And almost everyone else who has held the power of Grayskull before has been 
the ruler of Grayskull, right? Randor has never gotten the power. It weirdly skipped, you know, a generation or several generations. And so mm. there's this weird bifurcated, like he's the protector of Grayskull, but he's the prince. There's a birthright versus the power that he acquired. And I think, you know, when they started designing this series, a lot of it was looking at what are kind of the great stories that have always been hovering around that have been in the dirt underneath Motu, but have never actually bloomed, that have never uh, come to the surface, like Tila's destiny and her birthright. Yeah. And I feel like revolution really starts with a similar thing, which is, does Adam want to be king? Yeah. Like he's gotten to a place now where he has a new relationship to his status and his identity as He-Man and that part of himself and what that responsibility is and what he feels like he owes his people. But does he want to be the guy sitting in the throne ruling the land, which is like a somewhat bureaucratic position? Yeah. You know, to, to put a bow on what you were saying about Revelation mm -hmm. um, is I think there were two trains of thought um, where it was some people wanted the cartoon they had as, as kids. Mm -hmm. you know and they did they they wanted that childlike feeling again yeah and some people wanted this show to grow up with them yeah you know? like wow this is you know this this motu aged with me and now as an adult look at all of this subtext and well and i think it's very similar to the the classics line of figures where it's like right 2000x was a reinterpretation we're going to redesign these characters. We're going to make a new vibe, new energy. Uh, Classics was, you know, as, as sort of stated as its intent, that toy line was supposed to be, here are sort of the toys that were in your mind's eye. If you go back and look at the vintage figure, oh, this was softer than you remember, and this was kind of lumpy and whatever, but can we make the toys that felt like the toys you were playing with and plus them up and scale them up and add articulation and sculpting? And I think that was sort of the intent of this show was to try to make the show that felt like the logical kind of evolution of what you grew up with and the way it sort of felt in your mind. Yeah. And I think that this, the sequel revolution here, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, but it sort mm -hmm. of um, lands itself somewhere between revelation and we saw as a child, you know, the, the subtext yeah. is a little less, mm -hmm. the, the deep emotional impact is a little less and the, the action and the fun is a little more. And that's why I see this as like two different animals and, um, yeah. and they're both fun for different reasons. I was, I do think masters of the universe revolution could have benefited maybe from one more episode. Well, let me ask you this. And then yeah. I mean, I was, I was talking with a bunch of the writers and producers last week and I, I think everyone was saying, we wish we could have had one more, you know? And I don't, I don't think you feel it in, they get a lot in there in five. I think there's just that feeling of if we could have had a little more room to breathe. I, I will say I was like very satisfied watching it. And I do think watching the five, it feels like you're just kind of watching a long movie now, you know? Mm -hmm. It feels like kind of a really killer animated Motu movie. Well, I'll give you a perfect example where I just wish we had that one more mm -hmm. episode to breathe. And it, it involves your character. You know, um, there's this great um, team up between Orko and Gwildor, which, by the way, I love. I love. Uh, yeah. yeah, the Gwildor figure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have them, too. That's how that team up goes. 
I have that. I have that team up too. I actually did a top ten Masterverse figures, and uh, that set was on my top ten. Where, where, where was it? On YouTube. No, I'm saying, what number did we make? Oh, we. Where did I rank? Where did I rank? <laughs> I think it was somewhere like eight or something like that. What did you um, have at number one? Um, the Masterverse. <laughs> Uh, new Eternia web store figure. Um, oh, okay. So you were including New Eternia. New, yeah, okay. including New okay. Eternia. There was something like 35 figures released for the year or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, and there were so many good ones. It was hard I'm, to juggle. I'm biased towards the Revolution revolution ones, obviously. Course, but the, the, the Man-at-Arms Deluxe, mm. that was my favorite. I just thought like the, the sort of the options of that figure. Huh. Great. You could have him, versions you could get out of him. Yeah. yeah, you could have him home, like in his little hut, you know, yeah. or you can have him. I actually created that little cloak you get. I actually created yes. a hood, hood for yes. him. Yes. Sort of wrap it around. And, no, I and just saw all the pieces there. Yeah. Um, and I will say, like, Orko's always been my favorite character. Man at Arms has always been my favorite toy. I just think Man at Arms and Trap Jaw are the two characters that look the coolest. Oh, yeah. And translate the best to toys, probably because they have. The most sort of gadgets and modularity and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, Trapjaw had a utility belt. I mean, how cool yeah, is that? Well, and then he well, had the uh, articulated jaw. And then and even just the the, the at loop. the top. Of the, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah. You're he like there are like down. five different ways to play with this guy. <sighs> yeah, he was amazing. You know, yeah. versus say like you know Faker, which was just a blue he man. I yeah, I had problems cool. with him as a kid. Oh yeah. Well, actually, yeah. I love the Masterverse figure. That actually made yes, me. the Masterverse figure is great. But I also I like I like the way they did it uh, at the beginning of Revelation, where they kind of split the difference between the cartoon, where Faker just looks exactly like He Man, but then making it clear it's kind of projection over a robot. Anyway, I'm sorry, you were saying the, the Orko Gwildor. Okay, so here's this great team up, which I'll yeah, leave. and we could say it now, um, Ted Biaselli. Mm -hmm. the voice of Gwildor and here mm -hmm. you are with Orko and I love the jokes by the way where he's, yeah. giving, he's calling you like short jokes calling you half pint yeah and um what well, I love or, that that Gwildor, line is like it's a tall order and that's why they didn't ask you Orko <laughs> Gwildor is like the only character that Orko will ever be rude to you know like even someone like Evil Lynn he's trying to appeal to her humanity and I feel like there's this really cool kind of metatextual like they're bringing to it the baggage of almost, it's unspoken, Orko hating that Gwildor replaced him in the movie, right? <laughs> like, Yeah, and, that, and that's what I mean about that one more episode. I yeah, kind of yeah, wish yeah. we had one more episode where yeah. we would have been given a Gwildor and Orko, you know, it would have completed an amazing story arc and one that explained why they didn't like each other. Yeah. Um, and then we see the worst of friends become yeah. the best of friends yeah ending with some sort of tall compliment made by Gwildor towards Orko sure. at the end and I would have yeah, loved yeah. that whole arc you know we've seen that arc before but it's always fulfilling you know? yeah and uh I, when, when I watched it, I was like oh I wish I had room for that I wish I knew why they disliked each other and then I wish I got to see them like each other can you I know, can I tell you what my read is on it? And sure. this is just my own internal canon. I don't know if uh, the writers oh. and the animators of the show agree with me on this. 
Okay. My my read is that it it truly is some version of the eighty seven movie happened, right? Yeah. Which we've seen, you know, characters. We've seen Pig Boy. We've seen other elements of the eighty seven movie worked into these two seasons, right? And Arms references it exactly. Yeah. Right. So he it's said, just, like we went on that adventure together. Right. So it, I I think Orgo just genuinely, like a small child, hates. That for this one big adventure that's always talked about, they chose to have Gwildor show up instead of him, you know? Mm. It's like they, I mean, and I think it's the way a lot of us experience watching the live action movie for the first time where you're like tilting your head and going like, this isn't Orko, but like he's got the big ears and he's funny and he's little. It's so close and yet so different at the same time. Why are they replacing this character with someone like this? And I think Orko feels the same way of not like, you know, it's not like there was a mission and they brought Mechanek instead of him. (laughs) Right? It's like for one, for some reason they went to a different universe. They traveled to a a different land entirely with the other guy and he's never gotten over that. Hmm. That's cool. I like that. Um, yeah, and they pre- they could have maybe even accomplished that with a line, like when when Man at Arms brought up that old adventure, you know, and Orko would say something, and I told you I wanted to go, you yeah. know, or something like that. And uh, there's the other thing too of just like you know, I, a thing I love about this series is really drilling down into the the magic versus technology. Yes, thing. because it's one of the things that makes Motu so unique is that from the get go. You have these two things existing side by side that very often in most properties, you pick one or the other. Mm -hmm. This is a world of magic or it's a world of sci-fi technology. It's one or the other. Motu has always been both. It's always been robots and wizards and dragons and monsters, you know, and cyborgs and all this stuff. Swords and shields and spaceships. <laughs> right, right, yeah. which is what I love about it. You know, I always refer to it like, uh, are, do you know, are you familiar with the garbage plate, the upstate New York delicacy? I, I am not. Uh, it was, uh, I was working in Rochester last year, which is, I think, where it originates from. Um, but it's, it's a dish that's basically every good food put into one thing. It's like, Hamburger meat and tater tots and hot dogs and macaroni and cheese and everything. They call it a garbage plate because it's just like the scraps, but it's all the scraps that everyone likes in one bowl. And Motu feels like that to me, where it's like, well, just have ninjas and knights, you <laughs> yeah. know, just and a cowboy, all... real right, and a cowboy, and it's a robot cowboy, you know, like all of that stuff. And I think. Orko and Gwildor, it's another one of these things where you're like, here's this story that's kind of right there that no one's taken the time to let, like, rise up to the surface of. You got these two guys who occupy the same role and are so similar as characters, except one of them is magic and one of them is technology. Yeah. You know, um, speaking of, and I was so happy to see Gwildor there, but as we're talking about things, just, you know, robot cowboys, you know, Snout Spout. There's a scene with Snout Spout, which I love seeing him, but he's like spraying water at one of those techno robots. Yeah. And I'm like, what is that doing? (laughs) It's just bouncing off the metal, but he's trying. He's trying. He's trying. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, that was, I, Kevin uh, did uh, my podcast Blank Check. I guess it was about two years ago now. He's about to do another episode for us. 
but it was right when we were about to start recording Revolution. So I hadn't gotten the scripts yet, and he was explaining to me the big plot movements. And he was like, you know, and Orko's big thing this season is he's forced to work with Gwildor. And I went, Gwildor, it's like a thing I just, I don't think I'd even considered that you could put Gwildor on the show, you know, that you could uh, work them into the same continuity. And then he similarly told me, he said, you know, and, and Shatner, we just closed the deal. Shatner is going to be the main villain this season. And I went like, well, who's Shatner? Is Shatner playing Hordak? And he just went, Keldor. And my mind was blown because I went like, I don't even understand hmm. how that's going to work. What do you mean? He's Keldor in flashbacks. And he went, just wait until you see the script. And I think it was so clever the way they did it. I know some people were upset because the um, the the Dark Horse comics had sort of implied a different backstory to Skeletor. I forget but, which of the series it was. You mean well, the one tied to Revolution, uh, Revelation, yes. the prequel comics, yes. yeah. But I think that works. So yeah, in Masters of the Universe, Revelation prequel comic, we got to see his realm, his demon realm. And right. he had a wife and he had a child. The the sort of gar past. Yeah. Oh no, this wasn't the gar past. So this oh, okay. was the prequel. Yes, past. yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was not he has not been presented as a gar yet. So right. if we go back, I've always been a fan of the demon origin of yes. uh Skeltor. And I always preferred that to Keldor. And that's one of the great things about Motu is you know, you could pick your lores and yes. uh, run with that. And in filmation, he was always presented as a demon and same thing in the series Bible. And then in, um, of course, Masters of the Universe Revelation, um, he's mentioned as a demon in the intro. And then he, mm -hmm. he called himself a interdimensional demon. Mm -hmm. And then as the comics came out, we had the Masterverse comics that was tied to the continuity. We have the prequel comics and then the latest Forge of Destiny that mm -hmm. showed us the gar. Right, but when Skeletor was there, he still called himself a demon. Yeah. So then, Masters of the Universe Revolution, and William Shatner as Keldor, and I was blown away for two reasons. First, is that I, I never thought. I mean, if I just put my head in this, yeah. uh, two years back and say. Yeah. Someone says to me, like to you, William Shatner as Keldor. I'll be like, what? That doesn't I mean, work. That doesn't, that's not supposed to work. I had in trust in it, but I couldn't process what he was saying to me. I couldn't make sense of it. It was so outside of what I thought was, as you're saying, in the realm of possibility of what this show was building up to. And I had to sit on that as a secret for almost like two years, you know? Yeah. And I, as, as I watched it, it was amazing because suddenly William Shatner as Keldor became my favorite character in yeah. Masters of the His Universe Revolution. His performance is so good. Yeah. His performance is amazing. And so this good. is coming from a guy that you would have told me, you know, you would ask me two years ago, could Keldor be your favorite character? I would say, yeah. No. Yeah. You know, I, I prefer the demon origin, but they did this so well. Yeah. That, and his performance was so magnificent that yeah. I fell in love with this. I mean, and I think it also weirdly, it, it finds a way to kind of weave in every version of the Skeletor origin from a point of view, right? Yes. 
there's there's a really interesting dance I think this season does with sort of the sense Skeletor's battle with his own sense of mythology. What does he believe to be true? What is he told is his truth? What is actually the truth? And that allows this sort of obscuring of who he is and where he came from that gives us a taste of every version, any possible version that people could have an affinity to, and I think finds a way to respect all of them while ultimately coming out with an answer for this version, at least. Yeah, when some people read the prequel comics yeah. that showed his demon life, right. um, not the Gar. Right, they thought people, that was negating the Keldor. Yes, and yeah. a lot of people also thought it wasn't negating Keldor and he was lying because right. there was some ambiguity to uh-huh. his story, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was so happy. You know, lying feels like a cop-out. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I was telling this this, this sure. BS here and I'm, I'm really Keldor, ha-ha-ha. Yeah. I think what really worked for me was the fact that he didn't even know that this That's was, the thing. And I he think was convinced he was a demon for so long. Well, and it's, you know, Skeletor and Hordak have occupied the same story space before, mm-hmm. but they also are, to a lesser extent, a little bit. They have a little bit of the Gwildor Orko dynamic where it's like, well, they occupied the same spot in different stories right Right. now they've crossed paths far more in the history of the property and there has been this developed sort of relationship of of hordak in the the uh what what am i trying to say here the sort of yes thank you the hierarchy of power that was changed forever by black adam um the um yes the hierarchy that's sort of established and whatever but but if you're putting hordak in Skeletor in the same story, you have to justify a reason. You know, what is the story reason to have them in the same tale outside of just it's cool? It would be cool to have them both live here. And I think this sort of feeling of um, Skeletor being beholden to Hordak, this thing that's in a lot of the the tellings of Skeletor's origin, Hordak being this uh, being that kind of saved Skeletor, that gave him a chance rebirth in this new form and sort of cursed him in the process to then bake into that that the ultimate method of control and dominance that Hordak has thrown over Skeletor is depriving Skeletor of a sense of his own story Hmm. that he's been handing this narrative over to Skeletor where Skeletor doesn't even really quite know who he is and I love that he chooses at the end to be Skeletor Yes, you know, he says, "My name is Skeletor," and yes. uh, I know it was so well done that I don't think, well, maybe, but I mean, there is some, you know, it is some Hatfields and McCoys, you know, being yeah. entrenched in that community, as you know, you are on the Org. There is those demon lovers, and there mm-hmm. are those Keldor lovers, and <laughs> yeah, they stood on each side, and this yeah. one, at least for me, yeah, brought them together successfully. And yeah, because suddenly... well, I think, look, I, I don't think anyone can accuse this season of any sort of uh, bait and switching. This is truly a season that is about He-Man and Skeletor. And it is about those two characters. Not that, you know, it doesn't give room to the supporting characters and side quests and subplots and all of that. But the main dramatic thrust of it is these two guys 
trying to come to terms with their own sense of identity, right? And as we said, it's Adam trying to understand, do I want to be king? Am I more Adam than He-Man? What is the role of He-Man? What do I owe my people? What do I owe my father? I mean, all that sort of stuff. And Skeletor is really just trying to figure out who he is. Uh, And it's not just in terms of trying to untangle his past, but it's also how does he define himself? And there's this, you know, there's always been this very Shakespearean element to Keldor of being the sort of, you know, I mean, he's he's like Scar, he's like Loki, you know, he's like, uh, he's he's the the looked over prince, you know, um, his his ire being driven by this sense of what was never what he was never allowed to have. Right, right, and I love the dual. I love how the uh, the little um, lens from Skeletor yeah. turns from. Is it green? Yeah, green to red. Yeah. And you have that duality. You know, you have those two two personalities having dialogue together. You know, when they first well, that announced was, sure. that when they first announced Mark Hamill is going to have dialogue with William Shatner, I never so thought how? It would be, right. Well, I never thought it would be in their head. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes, yes, yeah. And that's what makes this masterful um in retrospect, that um here they are playing the same character. Right. And uh Oh, this is brilliant. Because well, you have the sort of, it, it takes a while to, you know, for it to become clear what the season is doing with including that character. Because you're seeing them occupying different physical forms, then you sort of understand the degree to with which Motherboard is, you know, manipulating the situation. But then you have that sort of fracturing, you know, what Kevin called out as like the, the Smeagol Gollum thing. Yeah. Of like, well, yes, there's this sort of play acting that is happening for this power grab of presenting Keldor as this new person. But that's sort of bringing to the surface this internal dialogue that Skeletor has been having for a long time with himself. And I just, yeah, it's just like, not to be uh, incredibly like simple about it, but it's just like, it's, re- it's really cool to hear Luke Skywalker and Captain Kirk argue with each other. Yes. It just doesn't get old, and especially with those two guys both really giving their all to those performances. That's what's so impressive. I mean, I was yeah. already impressed with uh, Mark Hamill, and uh, yeah, he, he was nominated for a daytime Emmy for his yeah. performance yeah. in Revelation. And I, I think his performance is even better this season. Yes. I think you feel him really defining mm. his own Skeletor, you know? That's different than anything he's played, and it's different when mm-hmm. Oppenheimer's played, but it has connections to both of those paths i don't even hear the joker anymore no i just know i agree with that yeah yeah yeah, he's found his groove and i hope he wins a grammy this year but then william shatner emmy but maybe give him a grammy too maybe maybe mark Campbell could do (laughs) an album as skeletor could you skeletor comes alive and then he can win the grammy as well oh that's that's where i'll blame the sinus headache Yeah. (laughs) yeah No, and he, a should, Tony. He, should, he should aspire for a Grammy this season. Oh, man. Okay, so as a voice actor um, mm-hmm. with union rules, and I, you probably know what I'm going to uh, lead up to, you're allowed to do what I believe is three voices um, in a series. Yeah, yeah. You, and, you caught the second one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, for everyone who doesn't realize, because I think there's going to be a lot of people who don't know, you know, yeah. and don't necessarily maybe watch the credits at the end to see. It's quick. Going. It's it's a quick bit, yeah. Yeah, which might lend to that 
additional episode that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'll do that. So uh, maybe I'll let you reveal it. So Griffin did more than Orko here. Um, yeah. What fan favorite character did you also do? Tuvar. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and with who? All, with with Jason Mewes, <laughs> who is the only other guy. I, I uh, When the first season came out, Kevin did a weekend of events in New Jersey at his comic book store and at his theater. So I got to spend a whole weekend with Kevin and Jay, which was really great. Um, but so even though I, I didn't get to record with him, he is a guy who I now, uh, aside from being a fan of his and having watched his stuff for so long, I could record my part of it and kind of imagine what he was doing and imagine the chemistry of it. But it was, no, that was incredibly cool to do. I mean, first of all, it's like, well, now here's permission for another character to collect, right? Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, there's a much more manageable amount of too bad merchandise. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, less of a hit on my bank account than Orco. But it's also cool to get to play a bad guy. It was cool to sort of test out. That was one where Gabe Kuth played Orco on the 2000X version, and then Lou Scheimer, of course, played Orco on the Filmation series. And those were very, very similar voices. So it set up, you know, a sort of precedent of how I think Orko needed to sound in people's sort of mind's ear. And I felt some freedom to be able to try to, you know, carve out my own little space. But you couldn't go somewhere wildly different with Orko. Yeah. Filmation, I want to say, once again, I recorded this almost two years ago. So there was a point in time where I knew this like the back of my hand. I want to say his voice is different in a couple of the different Filmation episodes. Because I went back and watched every Too Bad appearance on Filmation, and then I watched the Too Bad episodes on 2000X. And mm -hmm. there, there were very consistent voices. And obviously, Too Bad had a much kind of richer arc on 2000X, because you have the sort of origin of them as separate guys before they get cursed together. Um, and then Filmation, I want to say, I don't remember if the actual actor changed or there was just a change in approach to voice. But I remember watching and finding that there were three different Tuvar voices across the decades that were all pretty different. So there was a lot of space there to go like, there's less that you're beholden to. And it's also a very, it's a quick moment. I mean, you talk about the episode getting cut down. I don't think there's any additional dialogue I did that was cut out, but I do think the, the sort of techno too bad appeared a little bit further, yeah. at least in physical form later in the season. I, I wish there was going to be point. a little payoff. Yeah. To yeah. his creation. At least, you know, when he, uh, uh, Battle Armor He-Man is confronting all the evil warriors. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we saw instead um, Web Store. Yes. Right. Yeah. With the uh, techno virus infection. So, yeah. Yeah. I was surprised that since he was set up in the beginning in the first episode that there was no payoff. And I was just wondering I, if my memory is that there was at some point, I mean, once again, this is all a little bit, I've watched the episodes very recently. The, the scripts and recording were quite a bit ago now, but my, my memory was because you do the dialogue and, and the dialogue was always just that one scene of them getting dragged in before they're converted. But then you, you do a lot of miscellaneous uh, fight sounds character that's sort of the most fun part of doing voiceover um with, i mean and with with too bad with tuva uh tuva it's a lot of um 
doing the sort of transformation sounds, the possession sounds, all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But I, I just think at some point in the script, maybe they came back in some later fight scene. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. what I would imagine at least was the plan. Yeah. And since you're only managing five episodes, I figured he just didn't make it to the final. Yeah. The final version. And that's why I was thinking just maybe a sixth episode. Might yeah. Have. But well, look, I'll say this. I, you know, I, I can't say anything further, but I, I have heard what the full pitch is for the third season. And it is it is fully figured out, not that uh, it isn't subject to change, but there is sort of a complete full circle return of the king notion of what the third chapter would be that I think is uh, so incredibly cool and exciting. Um, and, you know, hopefully if people uh, like this new season and it mm. does well, however, the, the Netflix uh, metrics are measured, uh, that will come to be but there's certainly the intention there can we go there i mean we're doing yeah. spoilers we assume yeah. they watched okay so um so what griffin's talking about is um the second credit stinger right which by um, the way was not in the scripts when i read it that was a surprise to me when i watched the episode everything else was in there i went back because i watched it and i went i don't like it kind of blew my mind seeing it yeah. and i went is it possible that i read this and forgot it and then i went back and confirmed when I recorded, and obviously Orko's not in the scene, they wouldn't have needed to show me that right. either way. But when I recorded and they sent me the full scripts, it ended with uh, Evil Lynn and the Cosmic Enforcers with okay. the sort of Zodak moment. The first which is thing. in of itself pretty exciting. Um, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the, final, the final beat caught me totally by surprise. Well, do you remember that middle sequence where you can see well anyone who's familiar with Shira and the princess of power mm -hmm. knows um it was actually also turned into that animated movie secret of the sword you see yeah, yeah. um hordak get away with adora baby adora you know he, mm -hmm. he wanted to steal both babies from king randor and queen marlena prince adam stays behind they capture skeletor and he goes out the window with prince adora was mm -hmm. that in the script do you recall that flashback when you my, that sort of lends itself to yeah. that teaser my memory is that it wasn't but i might be wrong about that okay. i after i watched it i texted teddy mm -hmm. the executive producer who plays Gwildor, and said like i i need to uh I need to interface with you about this, about that ending. Um, and, he, and he told me that it was sort of deliberately kept out of the scripts and kept secret for a while, A, because they wanted to keep a lid on it, and B, because I, I, there was a bit of a moving target of like, can we do this? Is this too wild to do, you know? Yeah. Um, so um, my memory is that moment, that other moment you're talking about wasn't in there, but I might be wrong about that. And certainly some of those things visually develop organically past the scripting stage once it gets to animation, you know? When I saw Despera, Despera yeah. uh, it blew my mind. And for anyone who doesn't know who's listening, Mattel owns the character of Despera uh, that happens to be an evil horde name, alter ego for Adora, i.e. She-Ra. Um, when she's brainwashed and she's working as the force captain, for the and this horde. is from classics. It originates in the in the sort of classics mythology. Yeah, it was in the comics too. Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, she's in the DC comics. Is that correct? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's around the same time, 
2010s getting worked in it. Yeah, I think it was I think it was the figure first and then the comics this was before That's the, my memory as well. Before yeah. the Attorney War comics yeah. uh, she showed up before that so that was like 2014 I think. So Griffin, have you and you might not be able to answer this, but have you heard about Mattel and DreamWorks uh which for everyone at home is the current television rights holder for She-Ra? DreamWorks. Have you heard of Mattel and DreamWorks like finally striking a deal so they can use She-Ra in this Revelation Revolution series? Um, no comment. <laughs> as 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 a big fan, yes, uh, and a longtime fan, and one who has gone deeply into the weeds on this stuff, outside of it being kind of shocking as a story development, that is certainly. My knowledge of those situations is what made me so surprised to see that in the final scene. Um, the direct question you're asking is so far above my pay grade uh, yeah, uh, that no. I cannot speak to with any authority, but I find what is in that episode very exciting. And I know what the dream is of what would happen in season three. And I think people would be even more excited to see that happen. Mm. And I don't know what has been discussed in boardrooms, what will be discussed, how it will be how it will shake out. I'm, I'm not even uh, uh, playing dumb here. There's, yeah. there's a lot of it I genuinely uh, don't understand, and it's not for lack of wanting to understand. But I think um, that scene is very exciting, and I think people can extrapolate wildly from that. And some of their extrapolations might be correct and some of them might be incorrect. I know also it's already come out. I feel like you reported on it. Another thing sort of Skella God style that I was a little surprised was made public at the time it was, but there's one of the covers of the new Revolution tie-in comic. Yes. Who is the Sparrow? And I'm like, why? Yes. It was issue number four. And I'm like, I, why? I don't know how or why that happened. It's certainly a thing. <laughs> I would have thought would be better to have held off for as long as possible. But uh, all, all this to say, it's certainly, it is uh, fertile story material that everyone involved in this version of Motu really wants to explore. And there are a lot of thoughts on how to do that and how it shakes out is, is to be seen. Because Griffin, I'm so with you. I was like, there wasn't even a cent of it. You know, by the time that no. comic came out, I had seen Masters of the Universe Revolution. And I'm like, there isn't even a trace of No, and you you accept it as I, I understand this is probably how it needs to be, and there's no other way around it. And you know, Hordak was announced pretty early. I mean, we've known that Hordak it has been public knowledge that Hordak was in this series and that Keith David was playing Hordak since yeah. last Comic-Con, whereas uh, you know Shatner and Keldor had been, had been a tighter lid on that. So I was so astonished that the lid on the Dispara thing was so tight that I was not even aware of it. And, and you know what? Perhaps they purposefully kept the lid tighter with me because they knew I would, <laughs> I would get it more. But then... <laughs> But then to throw it out there on that comic yeah. cover, and I realize yeah. it's kind of um, a red herring because Adora, you know, you have these choices on that mm -hmm. comic cover who is the Spara, and none of them are Adora. But still, there wasn't even a trace, a scent. No, that I know. would assume that would show up, and now there is. Now people are asking the question, could the Spara be in this? And, and 
And I, yeah, it just boggles the mind. I'm like, why? That wasn't even the cover for issue one. It was the cover for issue four. Once again, I, I have I have no idea. I genuinely don't know, but my reaction was exactly the same as yours. My only guess in my mm -hmm. feeble mind would be that there are a lot of She-Ra fans that maybe are not He-Man fans, especially after the latest Netflix series. You know, some mm -hmm. that that was their entry into the fandom. Yeah. And well, seeing that comic might make them tune in where they otherwise might have not. You know, in hopes that Shira will make Possibly. an appearance. I mean, I you know. know, I just, I, I, I always, I think you only get one opportunity to absorb something for the first time, and yeah. you know, it, it, when you're our level of dork who exists online as much as we do, we're used to things getting spoiled by toys leaking out early or fast food commercials or all of these things where you're just like, oh, they didn't control this part of the marketing campaign. Mm. I, I think there's the counter side to that too, which is there's certain movies or TV shows where they're being so secretive about everything. And you go, oh my yeah. God, what's this amazing secret they're holding from us? And then you watch it and there's nothing that's surprising, but they just are trying to prevent the kind of general leakage that happens. And I, I think the reality often is there are just so many moving pieces with these things. You know, you have so many different companies that are, in conversation with each other that sometimes sometimes there's strategies that don't make sense to me and sometimes i don't even want to say they're oversights but it's just sort of like the channels of communication don't line up i have no insight as to what the case was there but and, um, and it was mattel who released the cover <laughs> i know I, I i was surprised by it yeah you know, it was the same thing we talked about. Skelgod, uh, Mattel yeah. did the same thing, and I love Mattel. I love their figures, but they did the same thing with uh, Keldor, where Keldor was part well, of the Keldor. They really tried to hold off, though. Yes, but I guess just the fact that they made it part of that first wave of figures that were coming out in January, and it wasn't even a Keldor figure; it was King Keldor figure. I mean. I mean, once again, I, I don't have intel here above I my know. pay grade. I'm speaking purely as a fan. But Griffin, we were talking about like calling no, no, things no. just Skeletor, Skeletor, not Horde Skeletor. I, and this I, figure is I agree King with you. Um, technically, the second wave, right? If we're looking at the Masterverse rebrand, because I feel like that, that first 2024 wave ended up coming out early, but the one that is Skeletech and Sorceress Tila and the new attorney, uh, Man-at-Arms and Trapjaw. Mm -hmm. That came out early. It came out last year and said, but that's sort of, in theory, the first wave of 2024. So they saved King Keldor for second wave, and they had not showed it off anywhere. And even when the recent solicitations went out in pre-orders, they weren't listing King Keldor. And it only came out when people got early samples in hand, and then it was there on the back of the box. Right. And th th the answer for that is you want people to be, uh, I think when people watch the show, they're immediately going to want to own a Keldor figure. Oh, uh, you don't want to um, have to wait. And I'll say, I mean, I, I, I'm going to be, Skill of God, I guess you could argue it's the same logic, but I wish they would have just held it one bit later. You know, I mean, the King Keldor figure stayed secret until about two weeks ago when mm -hmm. I feel like finally the pictures hit and they weren't released by Mattel, 
versus Skella God, there were like solicitations out for a long time in advance. The figure was on shelves for a month everywhere before the series came out. I will say, I'm going to be as vague about this as possible, but, um, you know, I watched the show as a Masterverse collector and I'm just going like, oh God, they better make a figure of that. They better make a figure of that. They better make a figure of that. I want all of these, right? Uh, We did press for the show a week or two ago at Mattel headquarters and I got a little tour of Mattel and a few of the people who work there sort of very quietly and secretly took some things out from under their desk and showed me a lot of the things I hoped were coming after watching this show. I got to see the early prototypes of. I will not say what any of them are, but in the the same way that I watched it and went, well, now I want a a King Keldor figure, Mm -hmm. a lot of the other ones that I felt that way about, I have seen the the physical proof that they will be coming at some point Mm. and and look pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, there are definitely honestly, more revolution figures to come, but I will I want to start throwing you. names at you and watch your face, but I'm not going to do that to you. Yeah. Um, mm, but you know, that's that see, that's what's great about this fandom is that, um, you get that you know, it's, it's two components, you know, with these shows being out, you know, you have the shows yeah. and then you have the figures, and it's and, and it's it's um, it, it's scratching two itches, you know. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, there were revolution figures that out of my bias, I was excited to see the representation, you know, the, the revolution revelation figures to me feel like, like the home team, you know, I'm buying the Jersey yeah. with my team on it. Sure. I love the figures, but it's also like, this is the one I'm a part of. Um, there was other stuff they showed me figure wise. That's similar to hearing that Gwildor was going to be on this season or that Heldor was going to be on this season where I went, I didn't even consider that you could do that. Wow. That Mattel uh, has in the pipeline that I think people are going to lose their minds when they see. I better make room back there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff coming. And I think I only saw a small percentage of it, but it was very cool. You know, um, I don't know if you know this, but for mm. like 15 minutes, I was part of the problem. In October, Griffin, I reported an article on foreternia.com that. I think the article title is Keldor is in Masters yeah. oh, yeah. of the Uni- yeah. Universe Revolution. Yeah. And that began a whirlwind where, you know, and um, it's funny because a lot of people reached out to me, including Mattel. And mm-hmm. Mattel's like, who's the leak? You know, I need to know, you know, who this leak is. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's on Google. <laughs> it's one of your retailers. <laughs> it just has it listed. That's how I found out the information. You know, it was like Masterverse uh, Wave 11. But or, this, to my point, unlike Skelegod, they were trying to hide it. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So I put this out thinking, I at the time, for a yeah. brief moment, I thought, whoa, this is cool. But I didn't think it was substantial. I never thought yeah. it would be William Shatner or right. substantial to the story. Maybe in a flashback, we learn, oh, my God, he's really Keldor, you know? Well, because it was funny. I, I, they announced Shatner. And say he's playing an unnamed villain. And then I saw a lot of people jump to assuming Hordak. And then they announced that Keith David's playing Hordak. And I feel like you reported this as well. But there was a story about Mattel renewing copyrights on a couple of different characters. And Granamir yes. came up on that list. So then people assumed, oh, Shatner must be playing Granamir. I, yes. I, I really didn't see anyone guess it correctly. I mean, and maybe I'm wrong. But anytime there was any sort of speculation post 
or video about it. I'd look at all the comments and see, is anyone getting it? And it's such a, it's such a lateral move. It defies a sort of traditional chain of logic of guessing. I would never dawn on me. The other one would be Zodak. It would make so sense. Yeah. So much sense. I saw that one too. Yeah. Because he's in a captain's chair. Right. <laughs> you know, right. And there's so and, and many. And that Zodak is this sort of uh, neutral character that he's yeah, always yeah. been this, yeah, flexible character in terms of which side he's on. Yeah. And I can see his voice, you know, suiting that role. So, yeah. yeah. So at the time when I released it, you know, I just, I thought it was exciting, you know, mm -hmm. it's, exciting when you're breaking news and stuff like that but i didn't really think i i didn't know i didn't see the word king it was just keldor it was sure. king keldor and i didn't realize how substantial it was and then a few people reached out to me other than mattel wondering you know if it was a leak or not which it wasn't but um and they were like look this is big and this is a big spoiler and we're trying to keep this lid you know yeah sealed and uh, this could really ruin the experience for people and i was like okay I'm going to pull it down. And um, yeah, I'm not going to mention their names, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pull it. So it was up for like 15 minutes. But once I realized like, oh, this is not a flashback. This is right. something huge. Yeah. And I really didn't know how huge it was until I watched Masters of the Universe Revolution. And I'm like, whoa, okay. And it's amazing that they have kept that secret so well. So I yes. should give Mattel credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. And and even other stuff like, I mean, now it's out there on, I mean, by the time this video comes out, the season will be out, but was out on the poster that they put out, the final trailer and everything. But uh, it's not the Green Goddess, I should clarify, but yeah. to sort of have this new form of Tila that is in certain ways embracing elements of the Green Goddess and all these sorts of things. They're pulling from so many different. I mean, Granamir. We just kind of brushed over Granamir, but yeah. that was I, to to not only have Granamir be in there, but have him be like a cornerstone of the season. It's not like oh, it's an Easter egg, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was fantastic. And to go back to your sorceress, I was thinking, you know, what is that? The Tri Sorceress. Yeah, she calls herself in show. Yeah, and I was looking at her, uh, Ka version mm -hmm. and i was looking at her havoc version and then her tri sorceress version i'm like there's gonna be a lot of figures <laughs> we're gonna get a lot of tila figures there's and, certainly a lot of potential there yeah yeah and no and you know what those were some awesome looks and, incredible uh, looks but but there's i mean another perfect example of like tila's a character that's kind of been clashing with itself since the very beginning you know yeah. this yep. whole history of well, are, are the Sorcerer and Tila two different characters? Are they one figure? Is it a figure that's meant to be played as both characters? Is she green or is she, you know, peach colored? Like all this stuff. Why does she have the snake armor, which is big in the toys and the comics, but isn't really in the cartoons and all this stuff? And I feel like they're pulling all of this into the soup in a really interesting way. Yeah, I think so too. So the monarchy. Is mm -hmm. gone, and I wonder how fans are going to react to that because there I is do too. Okay, you do too because there's yeah. that King uh, He Man precedent in comics and the classics figure and stuff. And this was an interesting choice for me. I mean, I love it. Yeah, you know, um, but I know a lot of people hold on to their their lore that they love. You know, and yeah. I wonder if they're going to be able to let that go and go. Okay, there is no king anymore, and Audra is going to become. Uh, president well but you know, i mean or... andre's going to run for president yeah 
you know, I don't say that to pointedly say that she's not going to become president, but like in the same way, this doesn't negate the possibility of King He-Man entirely. I, I think you want to like hone in on what it is as a story beat in and of itself, which is, right. you know, it, so much of this season is about the responsibility of being a leader, right? Why does Skeletor want to be a leader? Why do Hordak or Motherboard want to be leading through Skeletor as a vehicle? And what are these feelings of Keldor, who he was before then, and why he felt entitled to this throne that he never got a shot at? And Adam, who doesn't have a choice and maybe isn't sure he wants it, but is being told that this is his birthright, that this is his destiny, and now suddenly this is creeping up closer and faster than he ever expected. I think the big story beat is him just saying, I've been trying to wrestle with the sense of responsibility and whether or not I feel ready for it. And a lot of that is because he is selfless and he does feel a great duty to the people of Eternos, right? Yeah. It's not that he is hesitant to become king because he doesn't care. It's it's real heavy ways the crown, you know, the the anxiety, the pressure of that, the fear of failing to live up to that. And I think the big gesture he makes is not, I refuse to lead these people. Because obviously, to some degree, he's He-Man. He's going to be the protector of these people for as long as he has the power of Grayskull. Sure. But the bigger thing is, it shouldn't be my choice to make. Right. And a lot of that is, I think, him really considering the kind of tragedy of Keldor. Hmm. Whether or not that person still exists, whether or not there's like a, a savable soul in there anymore. That was someone who was largely driven mad by the inability to ever achieve a thing that he wanted, that he felt a right to, you know, what have you. Uh, it was never an option to him. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I once again, you look at how the season ends, and the only thing we know for certain is that he wants to abolish the monarchy, which I personally think is a good thing. I Me believe too. in democracy in the world. You know, I, I think it's great to give people a power. And I also think we don't, there's certainly civilian characters in Motu that have existed from the beginning. But there is so much written about the masters of the universe, the people with the power, the people fighting the battles, right? Mm -hmm. The people at the highest levels of the kingdom that we don't really tell extended tales about those people. And all of this, all of these stories are basically in the name of the masters fighting to protect those people, to support those people, to support the kingdom, all of that. I just I think there's something very large in a statement of of Adam and Human deciding I, this is if the show's always about who has the power, yeah. you know. That's yeah, no, really it's I, I have no idea how people will interpret it, and it's also you know it it ends in a pretty uh, open place. I think it's perfect for this story. Yeah, I love it. It's especially important after you see what one person can do when the wrong person's on the throne. That's really why, yeah. Keldor. Yeah. But 
just in the prism of people being attached to their lore of King Conan, uh, King yeah. Conan, listen to me, King He-Man, and yeah. um, they finally can see this realized. That's what I'm just curious how people's reaction. That's why, you know, I did a non-spoiler review. I, I made sure it was important to mention to try to let all of that go. You know, mm-hmm. your, your, your pre-existing notions of how things should exist and how things should go in Eternia. You know, even though there is so many different um, interpretations of the lore, mm-hmm. there's not, I don't think, any interpretations of where the monarchy is you know, no, no, I think that's an entirely new concept here. But mm-hmm. I also I also would just say, and I'm not saying this to I'm not saying this to hint at explicit plans for future seasons that I know of. Okay. I, I, I'm I'm not being clever about anything concrete here. Okay. I'm just saying as a fan who's invested in the same lore. King He-Man is a character who is much older than the He-Man we have in this series. That has always been something that is pinned off at a far later point in the timeline from when this story is taking place. So I just think, yeah, on its face, that seems to go against that sort of canon. But that's been a sort of side pocket canon um, that's at a much later point. And by the way, in in all tellings, you know, and the King He-Man stuff really comes in, and as you said, the sort of 2010s DC comics and the classics line and everything, it's like the bulk of the story we know is here to here, right? And then there's sort of like King He-Man happening over here, and this space has always been fairly vague. Yeah. There's just sort of this pinned future time. So I think, look... They could do 20 seasons and possibly get to a place where King He-Man makes sense and and you see the Adam of that time period sort of growing into that title, or or maybe not. But I think um, the the decision of democracy... Yeah, the decision of democracy at the end of Revolution is so far away from when that would actually happen. Well, you know what's interesting. I don't think it closes a door entirely in the same way. But once again, this is entirely my personal reading. I would love twenty seasons, by the way. But I think Kevin Smith alluded to just three, and um, you know, it was interesting. Kevin Smith said at the 2022 San Diego Comic Con that we will be able to figure out the name of the third series in this trilogy after we think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that we've seen Despair third series i gotta think is could be called masters of the universe reunion (laughs) interesting yeah interesting got that re in it you know you got other words like redemption which is a good one right rejuvenation Mm -hmm. retribution but i don't know if you notice i chose to cover my mouth while you started (laughs) listing titles because i know I, i i know the one they're thinking of right now yeah and I, I will not indicate whether or not any of the ones you just said. No, please don't. And this is, and the yeah. next thing I'm going to say, this is only me talking mm-hmm. and me talking alone. But I yeah. personally think that if you go this far and show, tease this, you're painting, self, you're painting yourself in a corner unless 
you know ahead of time that if this is a striking success, that you could go ahead and tell the story in the third one. So I got to imagine legally, and this is only AJ saying this, I got to imagine legally, if not, you know, contracts are signed or what have you, that at least they feel pretty confident that they, DreamWorks will play ball. Um, I cannot speak to the legality, uh, contracts, any of that one iota. Uh, Once again, not just because... uh, I shouldn't speak to it both because the, the vast majority of it, I have no greater understanding than, than you, but there's, there's a specific um, story that I think everyone wants to, to tell and a notion of how to tell it. And hopefully all of the many elements will line up to make that happen. Uh, people wanting to see it, uh, the right people working on it, what happened? Yeah, let's but, hope. but I don't think I, so, I sometimes uh, you know the 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 mid credit scene has become weirdly something we just expect now. It's it's funny to think back on the first Iron Man movie when that was a pretty rare occurrence. There are obviously yeah. other cases of that happening: a scene after the credits, a scene in the middle of the credits, but they were. Griffin, how about Masters of the Universe? I'll be back. That's true. But but that's like an example of, and I'm sure you remember this, but you'd tell people like, hey, how cool is the ending? And they go, what are you talking about? The movie ends with the credits. I left the theater or I turned off the VHS. It used to be a thing where you'd tell people the thing that happened after the credits and most people had missed it. They didn't mm-hmm. know, right? But you're like, yeah, there's these cool kind of promises. And they often were just kind of a little, a little note at the end. And now they've become this sort of uh, an expected thing. I mean, I'm sure you have this experience too, but when you go to see like a big comic book movie or a big sequel opening night and everyone sits in their chairs just glued as the lights are up and we're making it through 10 minutes of credits and then the credits just end with a studio logo and there's no scene and you audibly hear everyone in the theater go, oh man, why'd I wait for nothing? (laughs) And you're like, we never used to do this, you know? It used to truly be a thing that would reward the people who happened to stay or who happened to keep their tape running. And, and all this to say, I think that sometimes I watch um, movies tack on a scene at the end that is designed to make you go, oh my God, that's crazy. I never expected that happening. But there's... It, it it truly was just people sitting in a room going, what's the craziest thing we could have happen in this scene? Yeah. Not setting up a specific thing to happen next, right? Yeah. And sometimes they figure out how to write for, from that point, and sometimes a ball gets dropped or whatever it is. They don't execute it or they forget about it. I feel like we've seen a lot of credit teases that don't amount to anything or that it's clear they were writing a check for themselves that they didn't know how to cash later. And I I... There's a very clear, I just, I, I heard, and I was just thrilled, this sort of broad strokes explanation of what the next season would be. And it was so satisfying to me, and I would like to see it happen. And nothing that happens at the end of this season, in any of those final scenes, happens wantonly just to sort of have it be a mic drop moment. Yeah. Or have it just to be a thing that people speculate on. It'll be cool if people speculate, but... Those setups are happening with very clear intent. 
I find out I find when those setups happen and or setups don't happen, it's kind of mm -hmm. cruel, you know. And I agree. sometimes it's not due to the producers involved or the actors involved. There just wasn't an audience for the first one. No, and by the way, I mean I'm talking about you know audiences being disappointed when the end credit scene doesn't happen. I'd rather there be no yes. scene than a scene that feels like it exists mm -hmm. just to give you a, a dopamine hit. Because a lot of times it is just a dopamine hit. Oh my god, I can't believe this character's on screen. They're showing me this new casting. This person's back from the dead. And then you take four more steps out of the theater and you go like, well, wait a second, what are they actually... What yeah. is that set up? How do they write themselves out of that corner, you know? It also sometimes takes away from the ending in a way. Um, I, you and I, I are agree strongly, yeah. Simpatico with that because yeah. um, I think I remember... I was a big fan of the Daredevil Netflix series. Mm -hmm. And um, the third one ended in a terrific manner where all three main characters are sitting together. They've, they've made up all their differences. The two are, and they're all opening a business and a practice together. And I'm like, this is the last season. What a great scene. And the camera yeah. I think, starts pulling back. But then next we get this um, stinger at the end of a new villain that never happened. Of you course. Know, Daredevil yeah, season yeah. three was it. Yeah. And no more. And I'm like, for now. Oh. Yeah. It's almost like um, uh, if you were, I'm sure you watched Avengers Infinity War. It was wonderful, yeah. wonderful to end on that last scene where you see um, Thanos looking into the sunset yeah. you know, at a grateful universe and it ends. And yeah. then after the credits, I think it was Nick Fury hitting some sort of pager calling Captain Marvel. Yes. And if they would have put that right after that Thanos scene, yeah. It would have had a total different effect on the audience. Yeah. And it would have been counterproductive to the mood you're trying to create. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I think sometimes it could be just bad, bad decision making. So. No, I agree. And I, I mean, to go back to the the sort of uh Adam's call for democracy. Yeah. In this season, it's like, you know, that's that's the proper ending, you know? Yes. Skeletor choosing to identify as Skeletor. This is who I really am. That's my real identity. Like, that's a proper ending. These are the sort of emotional story arcs that are resolved within this season in particular. So it doesn't just feel like it's a string along for, well, when we get to the third season, that's when the real exciting stuff's going to happen. I do think you need to make each episode, each season of whatever you're doing, the most complete story you can tell at that point in time and then hope that you're lucky enough to get to tell uh further stories you know mm -hmm. um I, I, you know the tick ended before any of us hoped it would right and we we had like a couple dangling threads at the end of season two that like drive me crazy they drive me so crazy and they drive me crazy because I know what was planned and what was intended, but they also drive me crazy because I feel like, and I'm not blaming anyone for this. There were a number of reasons why it happened, but I don't think we figured out the proper way to let that season have its own sense of conclusion. You know, I think the door was a little too wide open. And I, I look at that final episode and it feels largely unresolved to me in a lot of ways it feels like it ends with the energy of well and then here's what we're going to do next that doesn't come to pass and i think there's a good ending point within this season if it had to end i think i've made it very clear 
everyone's intention is to do more and they're really exciting plans for that. And certainly um, Gaspara and Tila with the Cosmic Enforcers are like very direct teases for things that could happen next time. But um, I, I, do, I do think this season works as a pretty Me complete too. meal. Me too. If there time. was no more, it's, yeah. it's a great ending dissolving the mono uh, monarchy and that yeah. Tila and He-Man are going to live together in Castle Grayskull. Yeah. And it, you're right. It's a great, I mean, even if they, you know, I don't know with the Zodak ending with Lynn, the enforcers, I don't even know if people would be, if that was the only stinger, like, Oh my God, what's going to happen next? You know? Yeah. Just, you know how so many people are waiting for that reuniting. Uh, yes. Yeah, and He-Man. So that's yeah. when it's almost like toying with people's emotions if it doesn't come true. So, so I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that it does. Yeah, I don't think anyone's intention was to toy. I think it was no, to make course. it clear that everyone working on this show perhaps wants to see the exact same thing that the fans want to see. And Griffin, I just want to say I appreciate you know um, your your Orco is my favorite. As we're wrapping Thank this you. up, your Orco is my kind favorite. It, it really is, and even though I love filmation. Um, I was raised on it and I uh, love Lou Scheimer. How can you not? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but your, your, your natural performance um, without modulation and then um, the writing itself, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I really give so much credit to the writing because as I was saying before, it does make it very easy in a lot of ways the emotion is sort of right there to tap into and for for a property i care about so much and for a character i care about so much just reading the lines out loud gets me emotional because i'm while i'm acting it i'm also kind of weirdly responding to it the way i would as a viewer that i would get choked up if i saw orco doing these things you know um and so it makes my job incredibly easy the material they've given and so many different sides of Orko I've gotten to play just across these 15 episodes so far. I mean, it's like I, I feel very spoiled in terms of getting to play like sort of the classic Orko and the weakened withered Orko and the Orko reborn and yeah. then here with Gwildor he gets to play the kind of snarky snide Orko and all these different uh, variations. But yeah, I, I you know, I, I it's all for me just in you know, Orko is the the character. Lou Scheimer voiced a lot of characters on the show, and that was because, as you were sort of saying before, with union rules, you can have one cast member voice three characters before you need to pay them extra. Yeah, it's it's baked into the contract that any voice actor you hire, you can have them also play two other characters. And the way Lou Scheimer, who was really savvy as a businessman about keeping his budgets low on his shows it was how he stayed competitive one of the ways he did that was they had their main cast of characters you know uh, main cast of actors oppenheimer and everybody and then if they had new characters pop up in episodes that exceeded the numbers of how many characters they already had their main cast playing lou scheimer would just take on the other characters under fake names and his daughter would would take yeah. on the other characters under fake names i think and she was underage at some point she was. No, no, yeah. no. I think she, when she started, she was like 13 or 14. Um, but uh, Orko was, you know, it was the biggest character that he played, certainly the most consistent. 
And it's the biggest character that he created himself, arguably, for Filmation. You know, that was entirely a Filmation creation. And I, you know, in talking to people who have uh, who worked on the Filmation show, work at Mattel and Half for a long time, it was by, by all accounts a character he felt for very deeply, that he had a real affinity for. Mm-hmm. And I think you can feel that in the performance. And he built a base where... Um, you know, the whole reason I wanted to play him so badly was I felt there was stuff in there that had not been expressed yet. And it's not because of uh, the limitations of anyone's work up until that point. It hadn't been expressed. It was because there wasn't the type of show that gave him this kind of arc yet. And I just feel lucky that I'm the guy at the right time, the right place, who was persistent and annoying enough to convince them to let me do it. Um, but I'm just, I, I'm so thrilled to, you know, it's weird. I, I watch the show and I feel like this pride in him that feels very removed from myself where I'm just like, that's my guy, you know, uh, not like that's me, but I feel like I'm so proud of him holding his own in these battles, you know? Um, and I'm, I feel so lucky that I am able to be a, a small part of a larger team, just kind of keeping the legacy of this character alive. What's really wonderful is, you know, as a fan, I feel spoiled. And I, I feel spoiled in a way that I, I just really appreciate, you know, like you, you had an org account, a He-Man.org account. Ted Biaselli had a He-Man.org account. You know, yeah. that the, the fans now have grown up and they're continuing uh, the legacy. You know, they're running with the torch. And yeah. And, you know, what we're getting now is is as good as it's ever been, in my opinion, maybe better, you know, and um, it's just so exciting to to have that because there's so many, so many other IPs out there that uh, don't, don't get this amount of love, you know, that we love as children and they've sort of fallen by the wayside. But just to have this reinvigorated and for us to, you know, build a community around because this community is so great. Yeah, and there, you know, there were long uh, fallow periods as well. I mean, as I was yeah. saying, like when I first became aware of Motu and Toy Fair and everything, it was like the only one of these properties I was reading about that was totally on ice. And then even still, it's like, you know, you had classics, you know, and the fandom keeping it alive at a period where there wasn't a lot. And then that leads to classics building to a point where they can work the mini comics in. And then that expands into the DC series. And then both of those things end. And then now we have like, really, you know, there's almost as much Motu stuff happening now as there was in the peak in the 80s. And and so much more in development. And uh, I I just... Yeah, oh, let, let's hope they tap you for Orko. I mean, who's see? So you're better at trivia. I'm not going to remember his name. <laughs> who's the guy who's Optimus Prime that kept re, um... uh, Peter Cullen? Yes, yes. I mean, why couldn't you do Orko for a live action? I I would I would love to. I yeah. don't. Uh, I I would love to, and I've. Uh, I I, th- I think the the movie continues to be very uh, much a moving target. Yeah. I think everyone's intent is to get it up and running soon. Um, and I, I would be thrilled to be part of that in any way possible, but I, I don't know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Griffin, I have tortured you enough, my friend. No, no, no. My pleasure. 
I, I really appreciate you having you on and um, I really appreciate hearing your perspective and uh, especially as a fan and as a collector, it's just, you know, it's easy to connect to you and just makes you a spectacular guest. And um, so I appreciate you taking your uh, time from your busy schedule to be on today. Now, do you have anything um, you would like to plug or anything else you'd like to add or let our audience know that we didn't, you know, touch upon? Uh, I'd like to plug Masters of the Universe Revolution, five episodes, uh, yes. now streaming on Netflix. Uh, I I think they're very good. I like watching them a lot. Um, I had a tremendous time. I'd like to plug the uh, Orko Gwilder two-pack. Uh, <laughs> in my opinion, uh, end your list now. It's clearly the number one action figure release of 2024. What's going to beat that? Mm-hmm. Um no, my podcast, Blank Check, uh, with Griffin David, which you were very kind to call out at the beginning of the show, yep. is about uh, movies, um, directors, and their careers. And we pick a director and go through all their movies in order. As you said, we did David Fincher recently, and uh, we're shortly going to begin doing John McTiernan, mm. who I think is maybe less recognizable to some people by name, but is one of those guys you didn't realize was uh had such a massive influence on several genres especially in the beginning die hard and predator his first movie is nomads which almost no one's seen with uh, remington steel correct that's his first movie and then his next three movies in a row are predator die hard and the hunter at october which is kind of as good of a run as anyone's ever had yes um uh, and uh, and and Kevin Kevin will be appearing on one of those episodes uh, awesome. coming up. Awesome. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, and uh, I, I've been reading the site, watching the videos for a long time. I appreciate it. it's part of the show. So, and you always have an open invitation to come on if you ever want to talk Motu, any of the other mediums or figures or anything. Yeah. Like that. Hopefully, so. hopefully uh, next time there are episodes coming out, we'll have we'll have an excuse to talk again. That's great. Fingers crossed. Not Fingers up. crossed. Yeah. All right. So that's a wrap all. We want to thank uh, Griffin for joining us today. You are a delight, sir. Thank and you. Um, Right back at you. Appreciate that. Especially I would like to thank our wonderful community out there for listening and watching this podcast. And just a reminder, as Griffin said, you can watch Masters of the Universe Revolution right now exclusively on Netflix. Now, if you enjoyed the show, uh, please show us your support by liking or subscribing to our streams. You can also drop us a line by sending us an email to fourturnia at gmail.com. We'd love the feedback. And please visit us at fourturnia.com for the latest updates and news. And we have a community forum page, as well as links to our social media pages like X, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram that can help you stay up to date with all of our Masters of the Universe and Masters of the Universe Revolution content. So that's it. Uh, Thank you again, Griffin. And I want to thank you all for listening. And let the power return. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, Orko.